I waited three hours or so in line to get on the phone that night. And when I finally got a hold of my brother, I said, come on, man. I said, you know, what happened? Tell me about it. And he, uh, first thing out of his mouth was, he says, were you fucking that prosecutor or something? (laughs) Yeah, because she talked pretty good about you, man. What's cooking, everybody? I am joined in the bunker today by my friend, Mr. Tim McBride, who is back with some more phenomenal stories. And once again, if you have not already purchased his book, Saltwater Cowboy, from Amazon or wherever you get your books, make sure you do that. It is fantastic. There's a lot of stories in there that he doesn't even have time to get to in podcasts, but you will love every second. Total page turner. And look, this guy was one of the biggest smugglers of pot in U.S. history. He's lived a hell of a life. This was years ago, but it's pretty wild how it all went down. We've heard about some of it on the previous podcast with him. We're going to hear all about the downfall today, the things that happened in prison, just a bunch of more good stories from a great guy here. So thoroughly enjoyed it, and I know you guys will too. If you're on Apple or Spotify right now, please make sure you give a five-star review if you haven't already. That's a huge, huge help. And follow the show if you haven't done that. And if you are on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to the channel. Like the video and would love to hear from you down in the comments section as well. And to all of you, whether you're on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, please continue to share around the links to this show. It's a huge, huge help. The word of mouth is the best thing we can get, be it in text messages to friends or on social media, wherever you're most comfortable doing it. It's all a huge help, and I appreciate every single one of you who has done it already. Let's keep it rolling and grow this baby. That said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory, and this is Trend Fire. Let's go. This is one of the great questions in our culture. You're giving opinions and calling them facts. Everyone understands this, but few seem to do it. If you don't like the status quo, start asking questions. God damn, man. I mean, the stories, the number of stories you have from this is beyond comprehension obviously i again i encourage people to actually get your book because there's a million in there and i'm still like halfway through it i got more to go but like when did this actually start coming down you said you were doing it for about 10 years before you got arrested like did you see it coming when it happened and if not like how did how did the whole case happen right yeah um no actually none of us saw it coming and um one of the biggest the shockers of it all, other than, you know, having the feds knocking on my door one day, was the the fact that they had changed the uh, the federal sentencing guidelines after the first two generations had been sentenced. And they realized that the sentences that they were giving um, were, weren't garnering the, the desired effect, mm. you know, coupled with the fact that they didn't realize the magnitude by which all this was happening and that the... The people they took out left the infrastructure in place, which was us us kids. And right. I say kids, we're 20 years old, but I'm 64, dude, they're kids. Um, we continued operating on the assumption that we're just going to get a smack and, you know, go away for 8, 10, 12 months and come back home and that. But when we finally, you know, when it finally all came down and it was just a simple matter of having one of the crew... Um, a local guy who had been there and raised, born and raised in the area, you know, working and potholing. And his um, his part in all of this was running one of those chase boats that I that I had alluded to, right. running alongside the bigger boats offshore. He had a nice boat that was perfectly designed for that sort of thing. So he was hired a lot of times to do that. Well, when when the guys aren't potholing or <clears throat> doing their thing, even myself, you know, I don't care what they do. I don't give a fuck, you know, but just, you know, 
be there when you're you're needed, you know, and show up, right. do the work, and then go off and do whatever. Well, that being said, um, this particular gentleman had been in Colombia farting around with uh, cocaine and wound up getting himself fucked up and thrown in prison in Colombia. Mm. And the federal government knew that he was part of a, a, a it was from Everglades and part of that, you know, little clique that was going on there. And they went down there and offered him a deal saying, you know, we'll get you out of here. Here's what we need you to do for us. You a lot know. worse down there. <laughs> he jumped on the thing, you know, and and that's how they wound up, you know, following me around and, you know, following some other people around. This is some of the guys that were working, you know, under me and, and next to me and partnering with me in, in, on occasion. Hey guys, at the end of this episode, when the conversation with Tim and me finishes, there's an extra three, four minutes. It's an announcement. I have announcement, conversation with fans, whatever you want to call it, about the show. I didn't want to include it in the intro because it was too long. So for all the fans out there, I'd really appreciate it if you stuck around and heard that. Thanks. So they were surveilling you for a while. Yeah, yeah, for for a little while. I don't know exactly how long, but long enough to where um, the... Uh, the whole thing that left us in place was a simple fact that, you know, because they had changed the guidelines, um, because it had, was, wasn't getting their desired effect, they changed them to mandatory minimums. And they didn't realize until after they started, a, you know, this thing broke open with the help of this, this, uh, this one kid, this one gentleman. Um, he was running Chase Boat for one of my jobs that I was doing uh, 47,000 pounds, or 57,000 pounds, and I split the load two ways. I was sent half to north um, of Naples to a place called Pine Island, and the other half to the Everglades City guys, the Everglades City crew, so I split the load up like that. Um, I hadn't necessarily worked any great deal of time with this other crew from Pine Island, so I chose to go up there and you know and, and sit with those guys and do that end of it and let let the guys that I grew up with, they knew what they were doing. I didn't yeah. have to babysit yeah. that shit. So, um, you know, we're up there and, uh, you know, the, the, the job is on. And um, prior to going out, we were on a, on a back road of out bumfuck nowhere land on Pine Island. And uh, um, an old dirt. Where's Pine Island again? Pine Island is um, I can pull it out just there. north of um, Sanibel and Captiva Island, uh, just north of Cape Coral. I'll put I'll put that in the corner so people can see. But okay, keep going. and um, a whole gr um, grown up kind of a roadway, if you can want to call it that, back into the woods led to an old dock that was broken and fallen apart and just neglected and just hadn't been used. And one of the Pine Island guys saw that would be a you know, great place to unload or load. Um, so we backed a U-Haul uh, truck down in through the woods up next to the dock. So the job is on, and the little boats are doing their thing. They're bringing their stuff ashore, and they're throwing it to the guys on the dock, and they're throwing it bang, bang, bang into the truck, right? And so uh, five or six or so boats or whatever showed up, and we unloaded them, and then they just quit coming. It was nothing after that point. I'm thinking, you know, what the fuck's going on, man? You know, and nobody's on the radio. Nobody's talking. And then uh, it wasn't too long after that, I had a spotter out by the road, and, you know, sitting in the bushes, and he says, um, he gets on the radio and goes, Tim, he says, a car just pulled up in here and backed out and went back the other direction. And I'm thinking, you know, we're out in the middle of fucking nowhere. That guy's got no business oh. being out here. You know, so they got you. I turned around and started walking through the woods back up to the to the entrance to the, you know, off the main road. And I 
had him tell me you know, exactly what took place. And while he's telling me this, I turn around, everybody that was back at the dock and the truck was standing behind me too. You know, they were going to stand back there, right? And so where's the, the truck's just chilling. The truck's back there. We still got shit in it, you know, whatever. Like, you know, They're taking pictures and everything. Fuck that thing, man. But no, um, so we're standing there and, and um, all of a sudden I hear this caravan of cars roaring down the fucking road, man, you know, and it, and just as soon as I could see there, you know, it was some trees here and then and to my right was a, a field of palmettos, palmetto bushes and palmetto bushes don't get more than maybe four feet high yeah. like this. And it was whole maybe three, four acres of the shit this way. And to the left of me was a pine tree forest that you could run off through the mm. forest and go. Right? Well, as soon as I saw the first set of headlights on the road up here, I heard them slowing down like that. <laughs> Everybody scattered like fucking somebody turned the light on a bunch of cockroaches, right? And me, I everybody else runs this way into the pine wood forest. I start dancing through the palmettos going this direction i didn't get maybe 25 feet and here that car was visible and i squatted down i didn't get on my butt and nothing like that. i'm squatted down on my feet and my knees and i'm bent down like this with my head down so they can't see me and um on occasion there would be a um they call them illegal aliens now but uh, you know this colombian dude came in with the load and he was just going to get a ride into town and you know he's in the states Right. Well, he runs the same way as I did, only he keeps running. And I crunch down there, and the car, this um, tan Bronco pulls in. A bunch of them, I hear him stop, and I still hear him crunch, crunch, crunching <laughs> through the fire. I said, dude, I'm saying to myself, you better, you got to stop, man. Or this fucker hears you, and he starts running. He's got to run him, trip over me going after you because I'm right there. You know, so finally he stops, and that, you know, but. I mean, here they come. I mean, they were all over the place. And I hear them, I can hear them, and it's still dark out. You know, and it's like, there's some over there. They're running over there. Let's always, go over there. And, you know, I always forget that all this, like any story like this, is always happening in the middle of the night. Like it? sometimes yeah. when I'm first picturing it, I'm just picturing like daytime. I'm like, no, that's not it. Yeah, no, it's, it makes it even harder. This is, yeah, this is all nighttime shit, man. And um, so I hear them, you know, they're chasing after the, there's guys over there, but you know, they ultimately they wound up not catching anyone. You know, red-handed. Yeah. So here I am. I got nowhere to go because there's they're all around me. You know, and was the tr the trunk the truck was a U-Haul? You said right? Yeah. So it was like rented or something. Rented U-Haul truck. Yeah. So you just burned the a truck. big box truck. Yeah. Fucking you know, yeah. piss no on it, man. Leave it. You know, it was probably rented. I didn't have any part in the renting it. The crew, uh, Pine Island crew, did, and they probably put a bogus name under it right. or some shit. Anyways, but um, I can hear all this goings on. You know, and I can't get up and move. I can't, if I just, and I'm not sitting down yet. I'm still haunched on my haunches and my legs are going numb and they're fucking, I can't feel them. And every time somebody slammed a door or made some kind of noise, I'd shuffle and move my feet because I'm crunching on these dry, yeah. like dry leaves and shit. And finally, so I could get sit down and get the blood in my legs. So if <laughs> I did have a chance to go, I'm fucking gone, man. But I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this whole thing take place and, before I know it, the sun's starting to come up. It's starting to get light out. Uh-oh. And I'm thinking, oh, fuck, here we go, man. I mean, because if the sun comes up, dude, I'm there I am right there, you know. Because <laughs> yeah, I can see through the bushes. I'm, I can see their feet, Yeah, you know, like this, uh, getting in and out of that fucking Bronco. Well, as, the, as it's starting to get light out, um, 
the Bronco, the guy in the Bronco gets in, he backs out and goes down the road. And he comes back and the time he gets in and stops and and I could hear another car pull up outside on the on the main road and he gets the guy in the Bronco gets out and the guy that was in the car evidently out in the street says, What are you doing, man? Where where are you going? He says, I'm the guy in the Bronco says, I'm gonna walk down in there and, you know, see what we got back there. And the guy goes out on the street goes, Hang on, I'll go with you. And I'm thinking, is this my opportunity to fucking, you know, <laughs> split with these guys, you know, get out of view of me? And But the car in the street was still running. And I didn't know maybe there's somebody still in the car. Because if I put my head up and look and, and he sees me, I mean, I got two choices. Is the guy in the Bronco a cop? Is that the assumption? He wound obviously? up being the, um, the the head of the entire operation, Peacemaker yeah. is what they called it. He was Florida Department of Law Enforcement, FDLE. Wait, they called this Operation Peacemaker. Called it Operation Peacemaker. Who was involved with this? Like every agency? Everybody who was anybody, man, was involved in this. It was FBI, CIA, DEA. CIA. CIA. I mean, they all, yeah, because we were working internationally. And this is coming on the heels of the Iran Contra shit. You know? Oh, yeah. So, CIA is trying to cover their tracks. So on they're that trying to figure out what the <laughs> fuck. Maybe they've got some loose ends yeah. going on here for whatever reasons. But. Everybody who was anybody in law enforcement was involved in this thing. It was over 280-plus federal agents from all over the country got involved in this thing. And it had just turned out that this gentleman in the Bronco, is, turns out his name is David Waller. He was the resident agent for Florida Department of Law Enforcement, which is a um, quasi-branch of the federal government, only state-bound. That's um, not the U.S. Customs guy you no, were no, telling no, me no, about, no, right? No, that's the whole different That's a different thing, guy. Right? Okay, yeah. This is David, who wound up being friends with 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 me after you know so many cool. years, <laughs> as they all did, you know. Yeah. But um, that's that's another story. But um, you weren't the most dangerous man that they were going after. Put it that way. No, yeah. exactly. And then they they knew this too, you yeah. know. So, um, like I said, I hear the car running, and I think you know. Now the sun's like full blown up. <laughs> you know, I got no choice. I got to look. So I look up, and there was nobody in the car. Whew, I took off running, man. I went up, out, crossed through the ditch, across the street, through the other ditch, and I took off running to the woods, man. Oh, I thought you were going to say I took the car. I was like, damn, no. it's escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. No, and I ran my ass off till I couldn't breathe. I couldn't run anymore, and I dove under some bushes and covered myself up with leaves, and I just laid there all day because this is in the morning in the just early morning hours i'm you know and in the woods in, in the woods florida in florida mosquitoes and I'm, I'm everywhere rattlesnakes the, oh fuck all dude I, that was the least of my concerns you know <laughs> and i'm laying out there and as the sun's coming up and i can hear the i hear the helicopters but i don't see them you know and i hear them pulling my box truck out of the trees bang 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 through the branches and shit you know i know they got that fucker and so I, I had no choice but stay there all day. You know, I, I got to wait for this shit to stop somehow or whatever, you know. So, you know, I, after a while, I realized, you know, okay, there's nobody was chasing me. So I got away clean. They didn't see me. So I'm cool if I can just hang out and wait out, you know, wait sure. them out and see what the fuck goes on. So I'm laying there and, you know, it's been all night, you know, and in, in, into the next day. And I've got to take the, you know, I got to take a mean shit big time. <laughs> So I fucked this, and I got out, you know, and I got nothing to wipe my ass with. But no, a pocket, you got a few leaves. I got a pocket full of $100 bills. Oh, my God. 
So I take a nice, you know, a nice relaxing, you know, dump right there in the bushes, and I wipe my ass with about six hundred bucks worth. Of- <laughs> <laughs> I just left it there. That's you know? the most expensive ass wipe <laughs> a, of all that's time. That's the most expensive shit I ever anybody really wow. ever took. But um, so I get back into the bush and I lay down, I cover myself back up, you know, with leaves and shit, and then up in my face like that, and I kind of dozed off a little bit. Could you see how many? We're still around. I was. You I no must idea. have ran a mile, two miles. I don't know how far I ran so back. Really I was. Far. I was. I could just hear them. You know, I could hear the box truck. I couldn't hear any of the cars and the, any of the people. I could hear the helicopters and that kind of shit. But I was pretty distanced. Right? So how long? How long did it take before you were like, I'm clear to walk out of that here? next night? I waited till nightfall again, and you couldn't hear anything. No, they had probably did by that time. I eased my way back that way, and there was nobody left. You know, there. Um, but up until that, um, you know, that time as, as such time as I had walked out of there. What year I, is this, by the way? This is, um, 1988. Okay. And, um, yeah, I'm laying there all covered up in this shit and I'm, I'm dozing off and all of a sudden I hear the, some twigs and branches and, and leaves crunching. And I opened my eye like this, and I closed my eyes like this, and I, I looked like this, and there was a bobcat. Oh, nice. Probably cool. about a, a good-sized cat, probably about 60 pounds, and he's creeping up on me like this. And I opened one, I just barely opened him, and I seen this fucker. He's about two arms lengths away from me, clenched down, because he's not really sure what he's looking at. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, fuck, I just escaped all that shit, now I'm going to get just my asshole tore off by this fucking thing, right? And Would have been nice to have a gun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here I am, and I'm thinking, I got uh, uh, this. This just can't happen, you know. And I just, it just occurred to me, and I, I didn't give it a second thought. I just busted out of leaves oh, like this, and that thing jumped up in the air, did like three flips in the air, and took off. Shot like you scared away a bobcat. Scared him right out of his fucking wits, dude. He, <laughs> he took off running through the bushes like it was shot out of a cannon. Right? <laughs> and I, you know, I got past that, you know. And so here comes nightfall, and I make my way out of the bushes, and I'm walking off the side of the road in the trees, trying to make my way back down Pine Island Road and get to some semblance of civilization and get my ass the fuck out of there. Now here I am the next night after this whole, you know, scenario takes place, and. I came across the Pine Island Fish House, and it's like two or three in the morning, and the lights are still on, but there's nobody in the parking lot. The lights are on inside the, mm. the, the fish house, and I'm standing just out of the—and there's lights on in the parking lot, and I'm standing just out of the, in the shade of the trees, and I'm staring at this one—this is before cell phones. I'm staring at this parking lot with this one telephone booth. Sitting right there in the, in the parking lot under all these lights, and there's nobody around. And I can't just walk up to that fucking thing, you know, because who knows who's around. Yeah. So as I'm contemplating what my next move is, uh, a couple of boats, a longliner and a shrimp trawler come pulling in, and that's what they were waiting for in the fish house, evidently mm-hmm. for these boats to come in so they can unload their catch. Well, they unload the catch, and the, the crew from both boats wind up single file in the line to use the phone booth, the phone to call somebody to come and pick them up. And I said, well, this is my, this is, fuck, jackpot, <laughs> you know, this is my way out. So I'm I, out. I slinked, I picked all this fucking shit off me. I slinked down there and just got in line with everybody else. And when it got you to You look like you had just been in the woods in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, but and they didn't ask I mean, any questions. There were no worse for wear either. They just got off a fucking shrimp boat I guess. for the last three weeks or some shit. You know. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. So I take my turn in the phone booth and I open the phone book up to taxis and I call the first fucking one I looked at. And uh, the guy picks the phone up. And he's like, well, "I must have woke him up from the dead sleep or some shit." I said, "I said uh, I need to hire you to come to you know Pineapple Fish House and you know pick me up, take me into you know Punta Gorda or someplace, you know, and and uh, take me to a motel." And he says, "He said, did you happen to know re- realize I'm hell and gone from where the fuck you're at, man?" And I said, "Because he was like I don't know, probably forty miles away or some shit like that." And I said, "I don't really give a shit." I, I got said, a lot of money. <laughs> I said, if you're willing, I, you know, just pull up. I'll throw six hundred fucking dollars and hundreds in your fucking lap, and I'm, plus I'll pay for your cab fare if you show the fuck up, dude. I mean, I just come on now. And he said, you promise? You know, nobody on the phone. I'm a nobody on the phone. He's asking me to give me his give me his word. And he's, yeah, dude, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, now, you didn't have to power wash the shit bills, did you? <laughs> no. Okay, just making sure. No. That would have been cool. So, <laughs> as I'm on the phone talking to this fucking guy, here comes the sheriff's car, pulls in the parking lot, drives right in front of me, goes over here, around circles around the parking lot, round behind me, goes out the entrance and turns and goes back down the road. Like that. Were you shitting I'm yourself? I'm sweating fucking bullets, man. Yeah. I'm thinking, come on, man. You got to do this for me. And, I, and he said, okay, I'll be there in like 40 minutes or whatever. I hung the phone up. I hung out with these guys, you know, for a little while. And here he come after a bit. And I first thing I did when I got in the back, I threw $600, $600 bills in his lap. And I said, let's go, man. I, <laughs> I slunk down in that seat. And he took me to a motel room where I spent the rest of the night. And the next day I called a buddy. I said, come and get me, man. And I, wow. I got out of there with, you know. And none so you of us, didn't get caught? None of us got caught. Now, Nobody got caught. Did you shut down operations? Or? No, I worked for a little while after. I still had some shit that needed to be I'm done. Still rolling. <laughs> still All right, back to business. I had to finish up. You know, I already had you know commitments, but beyond those those you know those commitments that I had made, no, that was the end of it. So I I was I was into the you know the next year by that time. Okay, so you obviously you took care of those commitments, and then you took a chill pill. So did you start back up, and then you got arrested, or what? no? No. How'd it go down? The uh, the investigation continued, you know, not from just that oper- from that one job, but yeah. from the you know everything prior to prior that. to that. Yeah. And it was probably about maybe two three months when I got a knock on the front door and opened up, and there's this little guy, little chubby bald headed dude, sweating through his white shirt and black tie, and hands me a subpoena to the grand jury. And I went cold, man, like that. I didn't even talk. I didn't say anything to him. I just slammed the fucking door and I turned around and called my lawyer, called my attorney. All right, wait a second. So they didn't arrest you? They summoned me to the grand jury. Uh, wait, I've never actually heard of this. Like the target of an investigation doesn't get arrested and they summon you to testify? Yep. So you had an attorney on payroll at this point? Mm-hmm. Was that the only attorney or yet? Yeah, no, just him. Okay. But so what'd you do on that? What happened was when I was finally arrested, when they came to my house, wasn't too long after that. So you hadn't even been to the grand jury yet? No. Well, we had, we, we showed up, but he he had told them that I was going to take the fifth. And, you know, okay. Any questioning was going to result in my taking the fifth amendment right, which I have every right to do. Where was the grand jury? At the federal building in Fort Myers. Okay, so you show up at this building. I show up with my attorney, and we're waiting for my shit to go in the grand jury, and they dismissed me. I didn't even go in. Because two things 
at that time, we suspected, that, first of all, that they had probably got enough information where they didn't really need my testimony. Plus, I was giving the fifth, and it was a waste of everybody's time anyways for me to even attempt it. So we took off and went back, and the night they came to my house, um, I had a friend of mine that was um, staying in one of my spare rooms because the house that he was renting was being sold. And uh, we get, I get this knock on my door at like, I don't know, must have been like 2 in the morning or something. Shit, I don't remember exactly. But um, my dog started barking. I had a couple of Maltese. My girlfriend and I at that time, she'd left. You know, we were breeding them, you know, mm. like that. And I went to the front and the window and I looked out the blinds like that. And I saw this one sheriff's deputy standing on the front porch knocking on the door. Just one. Just one. And I told my buddy Don, Don, I said, you know, I just, just go tell the fucking guy I'm not home, you know. And I thought maybe the neighbors called because the dogs were barking or some stupid shit, you know. He opened the door and he no sooner got that door open, that guy grabbed him, threw him out in the front <laughs> lawn. And these guys come out of nowhere like ninjas with black everything and black on their faces. And they said, duck all kinds of guns in his faces and and I'm in the bedroom I'm back in the bedroom and I can hear this and I hear him say is Tim McBride in that house and he goes yeah he's in there <laughs> and I'm thinking thanks Don man you're just <laughs> so I'm laying on the bed and all of a sudden I'm look, I look out my bedroom window and I see those you know the flashlights going up and down the walls in the hall in the, in the hallway and I you start stuck, waving I, I stuck my head out the, like this and I and he shined one of them shined the light right in my face and I said get that fucking light out of my eyes and the guy goes, get on the ground, hit the knees, lay down like that. I went, doom, boom, like this. And next thing I could feel a cold steel pushing against me like this. They tackled me. Oh, man. You know? And, you know, cuffed me and dragged me into the living room. I got my fucking underwear on, and they check in the house. And and um, Did you have anything in that house? I had, um, I had uh, six pretty good-sized safes. No weed. I mean, I had stashed, you know, personal, so personal smoke. I had... Yeah, it's reasonable sum of cash at the house. A couple, you know, four or five million or so. Very, very good days at the casino. Yeah, and um, so I'm sitting there, and uh, all they did was clear the house of any other individuals that you know that might have been there, and um, I they were going to pick me up and walk me out. I'm in my underwear, and I said, "Wait a minute." Can I get some fucking clothes? I said, you know, escort me if you want. If you know, if this is, you know, your you guys' thing, to that room, (laughs) to that room down the hall where you tackled me, and let me get some clothes. And he says, this one guy goes, no. He said, you just sit your ass right there. Tell me where your clothes are. I'll go get them. And I said, okay. Like I said, the room just where you tackled me. There's two closets. The one closest to the wall. Shelves with my jeans and a shirt. Grab jeans, a shirt, and socks, and a pair of shoes. And you know, we're out of here. He gets back. He's not back there five seconds. He goes, holy shit. And I yelled, wrong closet. <laughs> <laughs> he opened the closet up, and he comes back out there, and he goes, what do you got in them safes back there? More I, money than I you've said, ever seen. I, no, I, no, I didn't, I didn't give him anything. I said, if you are looking to have as much energy as I do, I'm telling you, you have to get yourself an 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover because even if it's not all of it, it's a lot of the energy I have because I sleep phenomenally every night. The 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover comes in queen or king sizes. It goes right on top of your current mattress, and it is wired directly into 8 Sleep's proprietary app, which measures your sleep stages throughout the night to optimize your sleep around you. The best way to put it is you will sleep six hours and feel like you slept eight. I love it. I love looking at my statistics and seeing when I had a good healthy sleep, when I had a less healthy sleep 
sleep. Why? There's some stuff I don't even understand, but other stuff is very simple to digest, like tosses and turns, the fact that maybe I didn't have a good resting heart rate throughout the night, which suggests maybe I had caffeine a little bit too early before bed or a little bit too late before bed, things like that. It's awesome. You're going to love it, so you have to check this out. Use that link in my description. Get yourself an 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover. Once again, comes in queen or king sizes, and make sure at checkout. This is very, very important. Use the code TRENDIFIER. That's T-R-E-N-D-I-F-I-E-R. If you use that code, you will get $150 off your order, and you will start sleeping the best you've ever slept today or the day it gets there, which is usually within a few days or about a week. You're going to love it. Check it out, and it supports the show. Show me the warrant that says that you can go through my shit and I'll be glad to open every one of them for you. Well, that's not something they had at that time. They only had a, a warrant for my arrest. They didn't have a warrant to seize or take really? anything from me. All they could do was clear the house of anybody that might've been in there other than myself. That was an oversight. And they took me out of there. And from there I went to every one of these branches of law enforcement's office. They all wanted a piece of me. They were all when I wanted a pat on the back for having done what they did. I went to the, the DEA, to the Customs, to the FDLE, to the sheriffs, you know, the um, uh, Naples Sheriff's Trident Force Task Force Office. They just walking me through everybody. the hallway? No, they're walking me into each one of these buildings and they're fingerprinting me and shit and getting their piece in me before they haul me off to the federal building in Fort Myers. That seems a little excessive. I mean, yeah, can't well, you just you, fingerprint once? <laughs> you, well, well, if you... Want to call, yeah, I would call it excessive. I would call 280-plus federal agents a little excessive. Not, yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but um, that's just how it turned out, and that's what happened. And I, I wound up, you know, what they did was one of my um, Cuban buddies that I had done some work with, or for some of his friends in Miami on occasion, um, they put us in the in the U.S. United States Customs Headquarters in, in Naples. They put me in a holding room with... Carlos. Oh, you my, were with Carlos? No, not Carlito. Oh, different. Carlos. Carlos. This is a Carlos, okay. my Cuban buddy, who I was, you know, working with, you know, occasionally doing some stuff for his friends and hauling mm-hmm. pop for his friend and shit like that. Put us in the same room, chained us down to the same bench together, thinking that we're going to talk to one another like this. And we didn't fucking even look at one another, man. <laughs> you know, because, you know, we're not stupid. And you know, I wasn't fucking born yesterday. You know, this is all new to me, of course, because I'd never been arrested for anything in my life. Nothing. Yeah, you know, this record. is the first time ever being arrested. And I'm, you know, and I'm going through this shit. So they haul me up to the federal building and we're there all day. And there were so many of us that being arrested at that time that they didn't have time to go through the, you know, holding us all in jail. And in lieu of a huge bond or some shit like that. So they gave everybody a surety bond. Mm. Mine was a million dollar surety bond. So you're out. And they let me go that night at 11 o'clock. I finally got out and, and got a ride home. But now what's going through? They that? had me. Yeah. You know, it was over. It was fucking game over. Your lawyer immediately is like, let's yeah, figure well, out the deal. Yeah, well, it turned out that it was too high profile of a case for him. He's just a, you know, small time fucking Naples attorney. You know, oh, you like had this. a shitty lawyer. I had to hire his father-in-law who was a who was a uh, big time criminal attorney in Baltimore. Mm. I had to pay huge dollars to get this guy to to get on the case. He wound up doing rather well for me, you know. Were you able I mean, if they hadn't had the warrant at the house, did you get those safes out of there? Oh yeah. The minute they got me to a phone to make my one phone call, I didn't call Dennis. I called my brother. 
and he got the money. I said, dude, you need to get to the house and get that shit out of there <laughs> before they come and slap a seal on that this fucker or something. This is where you buried the money. That's where my brother took the money out of yeah. the house. Okay, I see, I see right yeah. through you here. But anyway, so you start, you start paying that lawyer. Does does he immediately say like, okay, this indictment's pretty fucked. Like, yeah, you need to make a deal. Was, yeah, he flew down there, and my first meeting with him. One of my first few meetings with him and and his uh, his son in law, who was my attorney, uh, all those years, um, I sat down in front of his desk, and he shoves over at me a stack of papers this deep, which was the discovery that they had gained from all these agencies. It was about almost three inches thick. Everybody that had said Tim, anybody that knew anything. Oh, that's just the Tim files. This is their discovery. This yeah. is the evidence of what they have against me, and they're not allowed to hold anything back. They have right. to give you everything. Right. So there's no surprises. And I started looking at this shit, and I went, holy fucking hell, man. This is, uh, this is insurmountable, really. So um, this, is, this is 1989? This is, no, this is still verging on 89. This is still 88, because the whole thing came down. The bus took place in, 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 on October 19th. I was, arre- I was arrested in October 19- in 1988. And you were arrested with 300 or some other people, like all Chokoloski. Ultimately, but at that, at that time, it was the first 38 of us. Okay, so either way, and then, like a lot. And then after that, everybody and it started going down like dominoes. Right. And what was taking place was, a sim- purely and simply, was that when they started affecting these arrests, they realized that there was no adult, uh, really adults of any significant age involved in what it was they were doing by way of Operation Peacemaker. Because they were gone. They were already gotten. Yeah. They were down down the road and doing, doing their own thing and got out of it and shit. What about the people, quickly though, what about the people when you, once the brothers went to prison in 84, and then you said you went and connected with all the people that they used to, like the senior people in Florida, mm-hmm. who connected you with Venezuela and Colombia. What about all those senior people? A lot of them were... Um, passed over. They didn't know them mm. because it was, you know, we were writers. operating on such a level as of sophistication. Um, and I, and I've throughout this whole time period, I'm explaining these scenarios to you, and you you can glean from all of that, you know, just how sophisticated this had become. Right. And it, and it was as such where, like I said, majority of the people didn't know who the bosses were, didn't care. And those that remained silent and in, in pretty much in the background, like like Billy, he was never Captain Billy, Captain Red, and right, Bill, right. He yeah. was never indicted. He was never taken because no How one ever, no happen? one ever said his name. I never said anybody's name. I mean, it was so just the way it was. They had you though because you're. But that's the they thing. They followed me. They followed you, but he's your captain. No, no, no. This is afterwards. It's 84 was when he quit after, after this. Oh, he left the game After completely. Operation Peace, Operation Everglades 2 took place. He left. He didn't leave. He just quit. He opened up a restaurant in town and, <laughs> and started being a restaurateur and quit stone crabbing and running a boat and that right. kind of stuff and just kind of easing 
backed his way into the darkness. And you none know? of that investigation happened until after, so no one knew who it this was. This is two years later, three years, four years later is when all this other shit took, you know, this Operation Peacemaker took place. And by that time, like I said, two years had gone by, which is at that time was the statute of limitations. So some of these older guys, just, you know, they didn't give a fuck. <laughs> two years statute of limitations <laughs> on millions of tons of weed. <laughs> yeah, go figure. They changed the laws, but didn't change the statutes of limitations. That's right? incredible. So here now we're... We're not looking at, you know, minor slap on the wrists. Now we're all looking at life sentences. And now they were facing life. Yeah. I was given four indictments. What did they say? And on each indictment, there was four counts. There's conspiracy, conspiracy to possess, conspiracy to import, conspiracy to import more than 2,000 kilograms. Oh, you ran through that in an hour. So there's four indictments. There's a million dollar fine for each one of those. That's $16 million on four indictments. There's a mandatory 10 years to life on every count. That's 160 years mandatory to life. So they do it consecutively, not concurrently. Well, that's yet to be determined. Oh, so but only the magistrate can okay. determine whether they're con- concurrent or consecutive. So they still have, they still have discretion over They still that. have discretion as far as concurrent and consecutive. Got it. But if you're given 40 years to life, dude, I mean, what the fuck? Yeah, fuck it. You know, that's federal time, that's, 85%. I'd still be do. there. Yeah. Or I'd just be getting out. Yep. You know, if yep. that were the case. But um, plainly and simply, the fact that, you know, once the first 38 of us went down and some of the other, some of the other smaller guys, you know, the bail handlers and things like that. And I had younger guys in their 20s and 20, 21, like I was when I was a kid, you know, when I first started running boats through the islands for me and hauling pot and shit like that. You get one of these smaller guys and you pull him aside and you say, look, dude. They they got you, they, you know. They know who you are. They're telling right. you, you know. And w- what happened was the United States government was um, had done by design rather than accident, given um, given us the opportunity co- to cooperate. Now, based upon your substantial cooperation, they now have the ability to impart your cooperation to the magistrate now she can sentence you below that mandatory oh really that was a rule yeah it's called a a title 18 rule 35 that's that's um giving your your government substantial cooperation in the case that you're involved in so your lawyer immediately started this conversation no this is something we picked up on uh, ourselves Mm. as you know as a matter of course as we're going through this it turned out that you know, they they knew that 38 of us weren't the whole thing. You know, none of this could all be happening with 38 people. Well, you were so, the middleman. Plus, the guy that was involved in it said that, you know, uh, dude, let's open this Pandora's box. Which guy? The, 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 the rat on the that was found in Colombia, and they brought him back and said... Did I tell you that? Part? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so he was he was still he telling was, them like, like you can yeah, get man. way more. Yeah, he said you're just getting started. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he was a real good employee. So they started, you know, picking on these younger guys, and you know, they're saying, you know, they're talking on your name. They're coming for you, man. You know, but as the as the arrests started taking place, and and these um, 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 offers to cooperate were given them within that um, cooperation uh, agreement was um, immunity clause saying that we'll give you immunity from prosecution from anything that you've ever done so you can open up and tell us without without um, fear of, of uh, reprisal. Right. Um, tell us everything you, 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 you know. But we'll hold one count back so that when you're, you know, when this, everything is said and done with, we'll 
review your cooperation and we'll give you a, you know, whatever. We can let you go home if we, if we so choose to, if the magistrate so chooses to. So now you're not bound by that mandatory 40 years to life. So when they gave him that immunity clause for cooperation, what that did was now they're talking your name. And they're talking Jimmy's name, they're talking Teddy's name, and, and these guys would go back and say, look, they're going to offer you a deal, this cooperation thing, take it. And tell on us who have already been busted, because you can't hurt us, we have immunity from <laughs> You see? Oh, it became like a pyramid scheme of immunity. Exactly. You're not hurting us, so to get out I of that life you. sentence, tell them, I'm, tell, them, tell them my name. And it didn't matter... Signed. Yeah. And it didn't matter that how many people were being picked up on, on these charges. It didn't matter if a lot of them were saying the same name. All that told the government was that they're getting all the right people. Because you, did, you, did you sign something I already? I signed nothing. You had signed nothing? I couldn't cooperate. I couldn't give them what they wanted. They wanted to know, who's, who's, who's this people in Miami you're always seeing? Who are you flying out of the country and where are you going so you, you know, might be really fucked. Yeah. You know, I mean, even though... But you're telling all these other guys to say your name. No, no, no. no. The guys that have already been busted and yeah. whatnot are telling them, I'm out of that loop. Oh, you're... The crew you're, guys yeah, and everybody else yeah. working are saying, look, this, here's how you dodge this thing. Tell on us, because we've already got immunity. And don't you tell know? on Tim. Well, none of that was spoken. If it was, I, I wasn't privy to it. I was kind of, you know, I didn't okay. want to know. I, I was too consumed with my own fucking what was going on, dude. I had 160 fucking years. I, you know, everybody's on their own. And why did you feel like you couldn't give them information? Well, for the simple fact that, you know, although throughout all the years of doing this and, and, and being raised in this industry, um, there was no violence like I already, you know, Explain. Explained. Explained yeah. yeah. that. Um, but if you go and throw one of these fucking guys like a Cuban in Miami, Carlito mm -hmm. Leo or Jamaican dudes that I work with or the boss in Colombia, I go saying that shit, dude, they're going to, you know, forget about the friend thing and, the, you know, and all that nonviolent thing. You go throw them under the bus. They're going to come back at you and do what they're very fucking good at is kill you and everybody in your family and kill the dog and cat, too. Yeah. That's just who they are. And you knew this. I'm fucking right I knew that. Because, you know, and I, and I told him, look, I can't do this. Because what you're asking for, for me is a death sentence. You either give me life in prison or you, you know, I'm, you know, let this fucking guy shoot me in the fucking head. Who were you talking with? Like, what was there one agency in particular? <sighs> like, U.S. Customs guy? At first, it was the um, um, investigators for the United States Prosecutor's Office. Okay. They were the ones who were doing the initial um, interrogation of me. And that didn't begin until after I was, of course, I had gotten out on that surety. Yeah, you're out of jail right but now. But I too. fucked it up by giving them a dirty urine. <laughs> I'm still smoking bugging weed, right? And they wound up popping me in drug tests and they fucking threw my ass in jail. And I didn't get back out. Where, where, where were you in jail? I was in Fort Myers County Jail. They had designated an entire cell block on the fourth floor for federal prisoners because there was so fucking many of us. They could, you know. So um, I sat up there for, God, it must have been, I think it was eight or eight or ten months or so before I was finally, you know, run through the paces and got my sentencing and all that. But So how did that prior, go? If, if you couldn't give up anybody, like how did you, how did this go down? What happened was, and again... You know, very serendipitous, and another one of those um, awesome sequence of events taking place, whereby 
I couldn't give them names, you know, but there was a period of time there for for several months while I was in federal lockdown in Fort Myers where these investigators would come and take me out, handcuff me, shackle my legs, belly chain me and chain me up in my legs and my feet and take me out of the jail and walk me around the building on the sidewalk outside. I'm doing this convict shuffle. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Hey, how you doing? Like this, they take me to a federal building around the corner, down this dark corridor, and put me in a room and and shut the door. And it was like a little tiny, just a little tiny space with a big glass window and one of those little bank tuck things like yeah. this. And in walks these two, this man and this woman with identical brown vested suits. And they walk up to the window and they slap their little gold treasury baggage up against the window. Mm. And I went fuck, just like that. And Susan. Deltuva, the United States prosecutor who was prosecuting me on this case, she was in the next room listening. She comes bolting through the door and she goes, Timmy, look. She says, Timmy. Oh. She goes, this is, yeah, everybody calls me Timmy. For face in life and Timmy, Timmy, Timmy. Yeah. And uh, she says, this is not what you think it is, Timmy. And I go, well, Susan, why don't you tell me what, you know, what, what exactly is it? Because if it's cooperation, you know, you just open the door and take me home, back to my cell, you know, because that ain't happening. She goes, no, no, no. What we'd like to know is how you were able to do. You guys were able to do this all these years and get away with it, and we couldn't. Fa- we couldn't catch you. And I said, "Well, pff, bingo, game over. I can tell you all that, you know. But I won't give you any names. If you can glean from anything that I'm going to describe to you, a name, more power to you. But names are out of the question because of that simple. You know, I wouldn't. Uh, so they they, they would have found me in, in debt. You know, I've been erased. So the only thing they really knew was what they had seen on land of possession and clearly then putting together that you guys were importing it. They Dude, didn't know how it happened. The only thing they had at that time was no visible evidence of us ever having touched anything. What they did was, and the only link they had between us was telephone conversations and telephone records. And the eyewitness. I called this guy, this guy called him this guy, then this guy called this guy, and that's how they linked us all together, through telephone conversations. That's all they had. And the guy who cooperated. Though. And the guy who was telling right. on everybody. Right. So when it came down to that point, and they wanted to know how the fuck I did this, I said, well, pff, I can tell you that. You dumb motherfuckers, you know? And I, the first couple of questions out of my mouth to these two treasury agents was... Do you understand the geography of Everglades City? <laughs> and they're Take like, some notes. And they're like, uh, yeah. And I said, well, okay, how many roads in there and how many roads out of there are there? Well, there's one. Well, yeah, there's fucking one. Mm. Now, how many direct links to Miami from that little island to Miami are there? There's one. US 41. There's only one fucking road. Did you sign something before you said this? Nope. You just started talking. Well, yeah. But they might be like, oh, thanks for all that information. You're fucked. Well, you know what? I was, you know, I was fucked anyways. Yeah, but you could could say, all right, call my lawyer. But they wanted wanted cooperation. This was my cooperation to them. I'm saying, but you need to have a contract. I mean, you obviously it worked out for you, but I'm saying like they could have said, fuck you. It was verbally agreed upon between my attorneys, my attorney and, and, and the U.S. prosecutor that, you know, he knew ahead of time that I was going to be questioned and this and that and whatever. He didn't coach me on, you know, what to do or what not to say or anything like that. He said, you can cooperate if you want, don't if you don't. And I chose not to simply because, you know, I'd have been right, erased. Right. And, you know, there was no doubt about that. Um, um, so What I, made you nervous that these were two treasury agents in particular? 
Treasury is pretty high up on the list when it comes to law enforcement agencies. Yeah. You know, and they pull a lot of government weight behind them. Mm. And um, the type of thing that they wanted to know led directly to the, it went from them straight to the United States prosecutor's office. There was nobody in between. They didn't have to go up a chain of, you know, mm. of, of uh, priority, if you will, Got with it. regards to law enforcement. And I knew that, you know, I could go ahead and tell you this. You know, because it's no skin off of my ass. You know, the game's over. You know, fuck it. Um, and I said, um, you know, once I told them that, yeah, there's one fucking way to get there. And that's down in Wheels 41. And 99 times out of 100, we're probably waving at your ass while there's, you know, <laughs> hundreds of tons of shits going down the fucking road right in front of you, you know. And I said, besides that, how do you think I got that shit to Miami? I said, I didn't get it over there on the backs of fucking pelicans and porpoises, dude. It went down that <laughs> one fucking road, you know, millions of pounds over the years, you know. So I start, you know, they they make this a habit of every other day or so. They take me out, take me in this room, and they ask me questions and shit like this. And it got to the point where I, I guess they weren't believing what I was telling them. It was so fantastic for them to, to, to grasp, you know, because they were just, they had no fucking clue, dude. I mean, it was just, did, they were that stupid. At one point, did you say, you ever see, uh, you ever see any cows wash up on the shore? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, that's what we told that boat captain, you know, the second time we went out to unload the boat, he did that same fucking thing. Oh, with the cows? Yeah. Well, this all? time he had not only cows, he had goats and pigs oh, and chickens and, and there were monkeys, these little fucking squirrely ass fucking spider monkey looking fuckers that turns out that they, you know, if the boat manages to get ashore and get loaded, because a lot of times, you know, they have just as much problem in South America getting loaded as we do getting unloaded. Yeah. I mean, it's no free ride down there, no, no, yeah. no matter what. But if the boat manages to get to shore and not offshore where they're bringing small boats out and loading it every night, you know, little bits at a time like that, the monkeys will get on board and start eating the seeds. <laughs> then they get all fucked up and fall asleep among these fucking bales of shit. And then they get offshore and they're trapped. So they didn't drown. They found their way. So I get up. Boat. We get up there and open the gates, and now come these fucking cows are falling in the water again, and all those monkeys went straight to the fucking light mast and the ta and the radio antennas, like they knew what was happening. And I'm, it's a, it was a hysterical sight to see, you know. But I'm just trying to picture like <laughs> thirty cows washing up on like the shore, and people being like, "What the fuck?" You know, that's well, going to be in a government investigation. Right that's away. what we were. That's what we. That's why we stopped it dead. We said, "Look, this is not. You know, this is the second time." We said, "Don't come back." No more animals. This won't happen ever again for two reasons. First of all, you know, the, the poor fucking cows, man. <laughs> Second of all, it's one thing to be walking be down the beach and, you know, and shelling and you trip over a dead fish. But it's very much another to be walking down the beach shelling and trip over a dead fucking cow, <laughs> you know. That's going to raise some fucking eyebrows, right? So we just, we dumped his ass and we never saw him again, you know, uh. beyond that. But, um so, you know, I, I go to telling them this, and this is my version of cooperation with them, but, um, you know, they ultimately didn't uh, decided that it wasn't substantial enough because they wanted the meat. They wanted the, wanted the, they wanted the big dudes. They wanted yeah. the names and that. Well, that wasn't going to fucking happen for sure, like I said. But you helped yourself. Yeah, in a, yeah. In a matter of speaking, but um, all that did, it didn't get me out of any, you know, it got me out of a lot of significant time, but what it wound up doing was they kept my sentence with regards to that bit of cooperation. They capped my sentence at 20 years. So They capped it. They capped okay. it. I couldn't get more than 20, but I couldn't get less than 10 because the mandatory still stood. 
They narrowed it down to one count. And then your attorney could argue in front of the judge and say, look, he did all this, this, and this well, in cooperation. she knew that at sentencing, and okay. she praised me in, a, in her own way by giving them information that was invaluable to, the, to law enforcement at that time by explaining to them exactly how this inner workings, this mechanism worked. And how ridiculously stupid they all were of it all, and ignorant of the whole thing. You know, once I opened that can of worms and started telling them how dumb they were, like I said, they kept taking me out and questioning me and asking me questions and that. And then one day they took me out and I thought I was going back to the same fucking place where they went right past that door. It took me in the next door down. It was just a little room about the size of this one we're in. One guy in there in a polygraph. Oh, because they want to know if they want to know if what I was telling them was the truth. Because they didn't believe me. All this money and all the pot and the millions of fucking pounds of shit. You know, they're, you know, they wanted to make sure that I wasn't just giving them a, a story. I walked out of that room with a big ass fucking grin on my face, <laughs> and I looked back at them, and they're all scratching their fucking head, going, "He passed." Imagine, you imagine being a polygrapher, like, wait, I'm sorry, is this question correct? <laughs> Did you watch 150 cows drown in the Gulf of Mexico? Am I really asking right. that? <laughs> well, see, on the front page of the Naples Daily News that day I was arrested, it said under the headlines, big, big, big front page news, area part of U.S. pot dragnet, said in letters about this big. And then in the, the subheading beneath that, it said, agents say 38 helped import over 150 tons. Well, what they ultimately began to realize, or I explained to them, and they found out was the truth, that that 150 tons was only about a week's work <laughs> between all the all of us crews that were working. So they really that's when they went, oh, wait a minute, that's fucker. Oh, that can't be. Well, that's when they hooked me to the polygraph, and I said, yeah. That's how it, much we it, moved. It can be. You know, that's just a week's work, man. <sighs> If you're pulling about 28 nights in a row, like I said earlier, and I get a rough calculation for my book to the to the tune of about 1.6 million pounds in 28 oh. nights, went across that on and off that little island, and people still to the, you know when I pounds. when I tell them that, and I know I know what I'm going to get, you know, as far as commentary about you know the the ridiculousness of the how that sounds, and I I get it, you know, trust me, I understand, dude. If anybody understands how ridiculous that sounds, it's me, but. You know, um, I wasn't, you know, the subject of an operation, a federal operation involving over 280 federal agents from all over the country for nothing, you know, for yeah. for a boatload of weed, you know, or shit like that. That's it. It was significant. No weapons. And no. It, was be, it was significant beyond their wildest imagination. They had no fucking clue the depth at which we were, we were waiting. One thing. That's that's all it is. That's what's crazy. It's literally one thing. We're just moving bags. That's right. it. Just middleman stuff. Yeah. Wow. So they at least gave you. They capped it. You go. You go in front of the magistrate. How much time did she end up giving you? She gave me the mandatory ten. Okay. So she liked you. She she acknowledged the fact that I was willing to give this information, but they didn't deem it substantial enough because they wanted some. You know, they wanted to go beyond me. Right. But they, she wound up giving me that 10 mandatory. With time served? Well, only the time served in federal in county right. lockup. Yeah, Because you've been there for almost eight, a year. It was eight months or okay. so. Okay, so you got that. And then right. you go to prison. How much, How long did you end up serving? I wound up doing a full four flat. Wow, you got out in four? Yeah. Well, the reason for that is, quite simply, um, was, was, we were talking earlier um when you get sentenced to federal prison, you have to work. You don't just sit around. You're right. either mopping floors, you're working in the kitchen, or you're doing some kind of work that you're making three cents a fucking hour for. 
you know, and then the second year you get maybe four five cents an hour or some shit like that. Um, but, um, they, um, dude, I lose track of this sometimes. They, um, you were saying you did a full four. Right. So as we'll talk, about I, I get to prison too. and they, um, you know, they, they assigned me work in construction and, you know, building and keeping up the prison and there's no fucking way. I don't want to do this shit. Right. You know, so I did that job for about three weeks or so. And I had met a, met a guy out on the, on the rec yard at the weight pile. His name was Rolando Raleigh. I call him, you'll meet him in the book. He was, um, a law clerk in the, uh, education building for the legal library. And, um, every federal or state institution is required by law to have prisoners to have access to legal material. Right. So we have a full-blown federal legal library for at the at the prisoners' disposal to work on their own cases or you know whatever that being. Me being a clerk, learning how to shepherdize and research cases to find them the particular case law and sentence that they can use to back up their you know um, their um, pleas for whatever it is they're they're getting. So Rolando got you that job. Ra- Raleigh takes me down and introduces me to a guy named Dennis Lehman, who was a head of the uh, head law clerk. He was also an inmate. He was a, a bank robber who had been in for 28 years before I had met him that day. He was, uh, he had a 52 year sentence, federal sentence. For bank robbery. Right. Well, this, the, uh, the, uh, sad part about that was that he didn't even rob the fucking bank. He was the pilot, the getaway pilot for the two guys that actually robbed the bank. Oh. One guy, they got them too. But mm-hmm. one of those, one guy got six years, one guy got 12. Dennis got 52. Why? Jesus Christ. Dennis was flying cocaine from Mexico to Nevada for a number of years, and they couldn't catch him. Oh. So, so they thought him. when they nailed him with something, they nailed him, screwed him to the fucking wall. They gave him, which I don't know if he might even be today, the most time given to a person for that particular crime. Wow. He's in the Guinness Book for that. Jesus Christ. So he liked me right off the bat. Started calling me Timmy like everybody else does right <laughs> up, right away, you know. So I uh, okayed it through all the powers that be, and I wound up, you know, transferring my job down to the to the law to the law clerk. And I did a, you know, as a matter of course, you know, having to learn that job and wanting to be obviously as I was through every part of my life, you know, the best at whatever it was I was doing. I had taken a course, uh, correspondence course, at the University of Honolulu, and got a degree in law. No shit. Yeah, you have a law degree. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And um, I used that to my own advantage by writing my own plea to the Middle District Courts in Florida for reduction of sentence, um, uh, citing cooperation. Because I just, just out of nowhere, I'm sitting at my desk one day and I'm I'm just flipping pages through this uh, dictionary. It's called Black's Legal Dictionary. Mm. And it's a dictionary from which all um, defense or prosecuting attorneys in the country define their legalese out of this book. So I'm flipping through it and I just come to where it said cooperation and I read it and it basically what it says as far as definition is that if you ask me for something and I give it to you, I have essentially cooperated with you. And I went, bing, fucking light went on. And I go to typing and I break my own brief for reduction of sentence based on cooperation and I cited Black's legal dictionary as precedent for that definition and submitted it to the court. And you got it. And a month later, I they, they wanted to rip me out of prison to send me back for for a review in front of the judge to her her, her take on the 
you know, my plea for reduction of sentence. But I chose not to go because here now we're almost three and a half years in now. And it took me almost that much time to get from the bunk from the center of the room to the edge of the wall by the window. All know? right, let, let's, let's, <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk about coming in, though, because, like, it's you had you were a Midwestern kid who obviously got caught up in your 20s with some wild shit, and it happened so fast. And, like, you're young, and you're just getting after it and whatever, and now suddenly you're 28, 29 years old, whatever. Right. It comes crashing down. And for the first... is the first time you're ever arrested. Ever arrested. As you said. So you've never... It's never been, like... And I've kind of asked you this throughout to get your feel for like, well, when were you thinking there was going to be a problem or something like that? It's never really been like a thought for you, like prison. Like you only ever thought like, oh, maybe I'll get eight months if somehow I get caught. So now you're caught. You you cooperate. You go to prison and you're facing – when you walk in there, you're facing 10 years. Like how shocking is that? Like what's going through your mind? Well, first of all, when it involved – that extraordinary amount of time, even one life sentence. Well, you got to stick sixteen of them on there, man. That's just stupid. Yeah, you know. But those were the guidelines as they were written in that in that day, and um, they were written that way because the old guidelines weren't having the desired effect that that they really wanted. So right. they had to do something about that. And we wound up being given that opportunity. A lot of guys given that opportunity to cooperate and get themselves out of that thing, and. I was ultimately given that ten years, and 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 uh, submitting that reduction of sentence from that ten based on, upon the the um, the notion that they honestly, and the U.S. prosecutor told me this one day herself out of her own mouth. She said, "Timmy, we just want to stop this and be done with it. We don't want to continue this for another decade of this goings on, you know." And I said, "Well, I, I can understand that," and. Basically, out of that came a simple fact that a year earlier, they were sending a second and first generation to prison for 14 months, 12 months, 20, 36 months, and shit like that. So they honestly really weren't willing to put kids in prison for the rest of their lives for what guys were getting only 30 months for a year before. Wow. So they gave them that open window, that opportunity. It didn't tell us that this was an opportunity. We figured it out. You know, hey, do this. Tell them, tell them, tell them. You know, you know, you're cooperating, but you're not hurting anybody. Kind of a deal. So, I submitted my uh, brief for reduction of sentence, and I asked my brother. I called him one night. And I said I asked him to go to that, you know, the hearing that day, and you know, I'll call you later that evening, and you tell me what you know what happened, what the judge you know figured out for me. So I'm sweating, fucking bullets, man. You know, I'm like, you know, if it didn't work, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've got, you know. Six more because years. of its mandatory, I've got. Uh, yeah, you're gonna do, you're gonna do better than eighty-seven percent of that time because they did away with parole. They did away with good time, except for after the first year, you have fifty-seven days a year good time. That's it. Where, where before that, under the old law, now they wound up sentencing me under the old law, but the judge found a, a, um, a, 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 a. a uh, a section in the old law that didn't provide for parole. Mm. She snuck me, man. You know, <laughs> she got me. But um, I sent my brother there to, you know, to to hear her take on my my reduction of sentence brief. And I waited three hours or so in line to get on the phone that night. And when I finally got a hold of my brother, I said, "Come on, man." I said, "You know, what happened? Tell me about it." And he uh, first thing out of his mouth was, "He says, 
were you fucking that prosecutor or something? <laughs> yeah, because she talked pretty good about you, man. <laughs> like, no, dude, no, fuck no. I said, come on, let's stop fucking around. Tell, uh, you know what? What? What, ha- what happened? He says, uh, she gave you four years, and I said, no, come on, stop fucking with me. Come, tell me the truth. So you're coming she home said, soon. She gave you four fucking years, dude. Wow. And here I'm three and a half years in now. You're like, I'm short by six months, and I, I bought, I screamed, I bought, I fell over and bought, pulled the phone off the fucking wall, <laughs> you know, that would have pissed everybody off back Fuck there. Fuck all line. you, I'm getting out of yeah, here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and here I am now. I'm six months short. That's amazing. You know, so it just, you know, one thing after another led led to that. You know, and my my getting into prison, my my falling in line with Dennis and those guys in the legal library and learning my shit and and how to manipulate my way through the law books and shepherdizing, and you know, producing backup scenario cases because every every case in in the federal judicial system or if, um, system of jurisprudence is is uh, based on precedent. Yes, and. What you do when you research and shepherdize and, and find case law to support your your argument, you find throughout all of these. If you've seen on movies in a lawyer's office, they've got these all these books, rows and rows and shelves of all what looks like the same book. Well, those are the those are the case law. That's the that's the precedent. That's the case law. Mm. They cannot, by law, give you more time for the same type of crime than they've given anybody else. It has to be uniform. It has to be some semblance of of um, uniformity and equalization to it. So if I say I robbed a bank for 10 grand and I, and I got 25 years and this guy only got five and his case is identical to mine, they can't do that. What about Dennis? He Dennis is different. Dennis's, Dennis's case is... Um, there was no, there were no case law, no precedent to back up that law, to to back up that maneuver that they pulled on him. Really? Yeah. But so they can still fuck you. They can they can do whatever they want, they dude. They, they make want. the fucking laws. Yeah, that's true. You know, but when it came down to that, you know, and ultimately, you know, they couldn't argue the simple fact that their own definition, Black's legal dictionary, defines what they did to me regarding cooperation as wrong and not just. They gave me more, and I cited cases, you know, regarding cooperation and other cases that went similar to mine, and that's what citing case law is all about. You find out through all of those books that are updated almost every week, and that was part of my job was inserting addendums to the back of all these books of new case law that's coming in, you know, to the courts. And that is at your disposal to find cases that parallel yours, Mm. that allow them to say, okay, well, this is not fair. It should be treated as this was right, that's how they wound up giving me, you know, said, you know, giving me the uh, four years below the mandatory minimum that they did. So you end up getting out at four, but I, and I always think about this though, like four years is still four years, man. You yeah. know, the eight to ten months before that, it's kind of like you're in limbo every day. You're not really thinking about the time so much as like you're figuring out your case. It's right? too much time to to grasp. Yeah, it, the, the reality of it. Like I, even when they were talking life sentences, I never. I never got that cold chill, you know, and I wanted to shit myself, you know, because it was just, it was too unreal to fathom. Right. Even 10 years is hard to fathom, you know, when you're standing in the midst of it. Until you get in there and you hear that steel door go, clang, and it all becomes fucking real. Now where where you were know, you in prison? I was sent to uh, Tallahassee, FCI, Federal Correctional Institution, Tallahassee. And prior to that, my release from from county jail... As a transfer point, I was taken to uh, Metropolitan Correctionals uh, in Miami, MCC. Oh. 
There were some serious people in there. Yeah, there was some. There was, yeah, they were. They were all bundled into the same group because that's the that's a transportation hub for the for the marshals because um, Eglin Air Force or uh, um, um, Homestead Air Force Base is right down the street, and that's the airport in which the federal marshals operated their Con Air out of mm. the jet that they chest for all the prisoners around. That's the marshals, federal marshals' job is to do that. You meet anyone cool in there? Uh, yeah, well, actually, I, yeah, I did actually. Um, I was, um, I wound up uh, being a bunkmate of a gentleman by the name of Salvador Gambino, Carlo's old, old, brother, old man, Papa Gambino. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, Carlo, and, Carlo Gambino for people out there was basically <laughs> the capo di tutti capi of the Italian American mafia for years. So yeah. his his brother was in MCC. He was in there. He, he had to be old as he hell. Got, he was an old man. He was kind of. He was a pretty old dude. You know, just the. He was pretty cool. He was a really heavy Italian accent in his in his English, you know. And I had no idea who the guy was, even when I first, you know, I was taken there. And when you're taken to from one prison to another, they put you in lockdown for about three days. They put you in the hole so they can review your file and your case to see that maybe there's something that in there that they shouldn't release you to general population for. Mm-hmm. Like if, you know, if I was, a, you know, had anything to do with women or ch- children or stupid shit like that, it was a, you know, a Chester or some shit, you know, they would literally kill you. Right, they, because they'll find out who where you're in there for eventually. I don't know how they how it works and how it happens, but you know, eventually they'll find out what your case is all about. You know, so I did my three days, but I was in there with a guy named Jimmy Papadopoulos, and he was part of the crew that worked the the deal that got Gambino and his nephew busted a twenty seven hundred pound cocaine deal. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah, so they were in the midst of going to do their time. So Jimmy was in the day before me, so he got out a day before me. And of when the I, out, of the, out of the three-day yeah. holding period. So when I finally was released to general population into what they called the glass house in, in MCC, that's where all the newbies come, the fresh, the fresh fish come. And from there, they're either designated and, and taken off by Con Air to their designated point of um, sentencing or prison of sentencing, or they're sentenced to stay there. Um, so I get out and I get my bedroll and I, I'm assigned a bunk by the by the cop who's sitting in there at a desk and he's got the bed book they call it uh, with your picture and your name and your your number mine's on 09498 08 that's my number my federal prison number i'll never forget that fucking number and my bunk just happened to be right next to the television and that television is on there's people sit guys sitting around watching tv all day long and i said did i went back to the to the dorm cop and i said look i mean i said to, you know can i please have a different bunk assignment you know away from the mm. tv you know, because it's just too noisy right there. And he said he was he was okay. He didn't give me any shit about it. He said, oh, "Go find a bunk somewhere that, that that you know suits you, and come back and tell me where it is, and I'll I'll move your you know your shit to that that spot." Mm. So immediately, now this is a two level um, dormitory style open. I mean, the bunks are all over the floor and the down below, and there's a place to walk through between them. And up above, and they call it glass house because it's. Uh, glass pane windows from the floor almost to the ceiling on three walls. And um, you go up the stairs, there's a tier upstairs, like a balcony uh, that, wrap, that, circumfer- that, um, that wraps the entire bottom floor. So I go up the stairs and I pass the bathroom and the wall cuts back in and that's where the bunks start. And as I was walking past that, I hear, hey, Timmy! And there's, I look over and there's Jimmy, the guy I was in the <laughs> hall with. And he's sitting there on two guys on this side on the bottom bunk and this little old man sitting on the bunk, you know, opposite them. And he says, what are you doing, man? 
I said, dude, I'm looking for a new bunk. I'm looking for a place to hang out. He says, right there. And he points to the bunk on top of this old man, over the top of this old guy. Gambino. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know who he was at the time. And uh, so I went down and told the dude, uh, like, dorm hack, and he changed my shit. I went up there and put my shit out there. And and I sat down and we start bullshitting. And uh, this little old man sitting next to me, he goes... And he's sitting there with a blanket over him. He says, "He says, man, it's a fucking cold in this place." Is it? <laughs> and he's sitting there shivering. And I said, and I put my hand on his shoulder. And I says, "Hang on a minute, I got you." So I climbed up on my bunk, and I had learned, for, having been locked down for this amount of time already, that the the vents that the air conditioning came out of were two levers, two two sets of uh, louvered vents, one this way and one this way, mm. with a space in between. Well, I just folded up a newspaper and slipped it in there and whoosh, shut the air off from blowing down on top of everybody. Mm. And it was about five minutes or so go by. He takes his blanket off. And he goes, you're a smart guy. He says, <laughs> puts his hand on my shoulder. And he says, you're a pretty smart guy. He says, I like you, man. He says, I tell you what. And um, it was a Saturday. And the next morning was Sunday morning. And they make um, homemade, the guys in the kitchen, there was her pri- prisoners. They're the cooks and the chefs and all this kind of shit. And they're making homemade donuts on Sunday morning and, you know, a nice breakfast, uh, you know, whatever you want, you know, kind of a thing. And and uh, sur- surprisingly, the meals were really very good. Uh, the in whole prison? Time. Yeah, in federal prison. I was, You're I the was, first person that's ever said that to me. I was surprised at that, you know. But, really? Um, yeah. And the um, that wow. compound, the, the, the prison itself was almost butted right up next to the, the Metropolitan Zoo, the Miami Zoo. <laughs> right? So... Consequently, being that close, they had um, peacocks walking around the compound inside the fucking prison. Oh, come on! That, that came over from the from the zoo next door. Just chilling. Just chilling, man. And they let them stay in there because you know if anybody gets out, you get near these fucking things, they start screaming like little girls. If you've ever heard oh, of peacocks, so they're like security. Yeah. Have you ever heard of like ever heard of peacock no. scream? It's, oh yeah, it sounds like a little girl screaming like that. Right? <laughs> so, but they had a little walk. They had a walkway around a small pond that was in the middle of the compound and like that, and a bench and shit. So, we got. He says, "You know what?" He says, "Timmy." He says, "Tomorrow morning." He says, "We're gonna go to the chow hall. We're gonna get some nice donuts and a coffee." He says, and then we're going to take a walk around the lake. He says, <laughs> says, does that sound okay to you? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? You know? <laughs> and the whole time we were having this conversation and whatnot, the guys are walking past paying respects. Hello, Papa. How you doing, Papa? Like this. And I'm thinking, what the fuck, you know? So he gets up to go around the corner of the bathroom to take a piss, and I lean over and I said, Jimmy, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> he says, that's Papa. Papa fucking who? Papa Gambino. <laughs> oh, my God. My bunkmate wound up being Salvador. Wow. Yeah. And he, you know, we got to chatting, and he he took a shining to me, you know. He called me Timmy, just like everybody else. And, um, you know, he and his nephew and, and Jimmy were involved in the same cocaine deal, and they all got a significant amount of time. And he was impressed by the way... You know, they knew that I had 10 years mandatory, and he was impressed, I guess. And by the way, I was able to be as relaxed as I was, knowing I had this much ahead of me. Mm. And he wanted to know if I would, you know, maybe have a conversation with his nephew about because he's having a real hard time dealing with the amount of time that he's gotten. And ultimately, I said, you know, I, I wound up telling him, like, if you are looking to search the web privately and not have all these websites track you when you leave, check out my friends over at Privato VPN. Privato is the VPN company that gives you full privacy while losing you absolutely no speed 
and it allows you to use the VPN on up to 10 different devices at a time. I have two. You can use it on 10. It gives you the same utility all around. It's easy to use. We love that. So if you use the link in my description, you will go to my landing page with the site, and you will see a plan there for $4.99 a month. It's the same one I use. Like I said, it's very, very easy to use. You get used to it right away. It's clicking one button, and boom, it's on. You got your privacy, your internet surfing. It's wonderful. So check it out. It supports the show, and you're going to love it. I'll be happy to talk to him. You know, I'll be glad to talk with him, but, you know, and in the end of it all, he's going to have to learn how to do this time himself. I can't yeah. tell him how to do it, you know, because everybody does their time differently. You know, and we talked about this earlier, too, you know, after, yeah. after being yeah, in there, I've seen, I can't remember how many guys I've seen just get crazy and run for the fence, you know, thinking they're going to get out of there. But, it, you know, it never happens. It's one of those things that, like, if if you haven't been in that position, I don't think you could possibly understand. You but can't. like. You know, I, I, as I was telling you, it's just like we talk about this stuff like it's nothing. Like, oh, life in prison, 25 years, five years, 10. It, this is time, man. Yeah. You have to understand that, you know, even still, my trying to explain it to you, to anybody, even you guys, you know, about about doing time and having to understand how to do it on your own. Because you take, say, the past 10 years of your life. And you try to recall what, how old you were and what you were doing and where you might have been and what you were into 10 years ago. And how much time and how many days have passed, individual right. days and individual happenings and circumstances and, and things taking place every single day is, is a happening of its own for 10 fucking years. Yeah. And when you watch a movie, of, a prison movie or anything like that, you know, you're just getting glimpses of a person's life in prison and you think, oh, I can, oh, fuck, I could do that. But what you're not getting and you're not grasping in reality is the day-to-day goings-on, the politics, the, the shit you have to put up with with inmates that so deserve to be there, you know, mm. and then some that really don't. You know, right. and I say that only because uh, I'll, give, I'll cite two specific incidences regarding people that absolutely didn't deserve to be in prison. One guy I met got 14 months for destruction of federal property. He was in a 7-Eleven buying stamps <laughs> in a machine like that, mm-hmm. and a stamp didn't come out. So he's banging on this motherfucker. He backs up and he gives it a kick. And while he's doing that, the woman behind the counter is calling the cops. Come on. Guy's in here beating up on the stamp machine. The cops pull up. Destruction of federal property. Don't that's they a, have that's it on a camera? felony. Don't they have? They it didn't on have because they didn't have CT at that time. Oh this my is, god! Fourteen months 14 for kicking a stamp ca- machine. Destruction of federal property. It's a felony. It's a federal crime. Now he's committing in a Seven Eleven. <laughs> Another guy. Check this out. He's getting. He's doing. Uh, uh, Thirteen months. This guy's doing. For assaulting a federal employee, he's walking his dog down the sidewalk on a leash, mind you. Here comes the mailman walking with his cart with the mail the other direction. He gets up close to him and his dog starts barking like this. First thing this fucking mailman does is pull out his mace and gives the dog a squirt. This guy goes off. He pummels the shit out of that fucking mailman. Assault on a federal employee. Come on. Assaulting a federal employee. You get 13 fucking months for that. 13 months for beating up a mailman. Beating the mailman up because he maced his dog. (laughs) 
Jesus. Now, that's why I say some people absolutely do not deserve to be there, but there are others that, man, sure. they're it's... home. That's where they need to fucking be. Yes. Because I've seen them ro- ro- the revolving door. Hey, dude, I'm back. Yeah, hey, brother. You know, this kind of shit. You know, back for another round. Uh, you know, who the fuck wants another round of this shit? You know, anybody with any, you know, intelligence whatsoever has to spend one night in fucking jail. That's enough. You don't want to go back to that fucker again, let alone for 10 fucking years or more. Yeah. You know? So it is what it is. Prison is what it is. And then in those days, it wasn't like like you hear now, like in state prisons and stuff with the, with the you know, the gangs and the cliques and all that fucking stupid shit going on. That sort of stuff didn't really come into existence as full-blown as it appears to be on television in those days there were mm-hmm. there were separations between the the, the black uh, inmates and the hispanic inmates being cuban mostly you know we kind of kept our distance a little bit and the whites of course you know, like that with some little mingling going on because of the you know based on your level of intelligence and your ability mm-hmm. to you know to get along with people in a scenario such as that and a, p- a place that you're being put in um but um in my case there was you know um fortunately for for a lot of us ultimately there were so many of us that had gone gotten sentenced and sent to jail over 280 ultimately out of southwest florida and florida in itself through operation peacemaker Peacemaker alone there were 250 plus during the first two operation everglades but those were those were under other other guidelines Mm. now us third generation guys there was just so many of us that um, the Bureau, Federal Bureau of Prisons is obligated, if they can, to keep you as close to your home area as possible to allow you to get visits from mm-hmm. family, make it easier on family to get, you know, to get you a visit. Now, Tallahassee Federal Prison being one of only three prisons in Florida at that time, in northern Florida, federal institutions, that, um, and there being so many of us, hell, at one point there was, I think, 23 of us all together in the same prison. Mm. So we kind of kept to ourselves, yeah. you know, and some were, some of the old generation, you know, other generation was just getting out and us kids are coming in, you know, but at that, at that time there was always a buddy around somewhere, you know, like that. It's interesting how that happens and like how they, you know, you even see it though with like dangerous clicks and stuff. Like they'll have some of the mobsters together or like, right. put, and then again, like even the people who don't know each other, prisons are, can be such a, cause they're not correctional facilities obviously there's, like, there's no correcting there's no going correcting. on that, yeah. that's the furthest thing from their mind is trying to you know to um there's no such thing as rehabilitation right that's bullshit it's like you know, only if you want it to be these people they they go to they're from interesting environments where obviously crime was going on around them and then they go if they go to prison young it's like college for them right you know i, I have my friend dan thayer in here i was telling you a little bit about this earlier but you know, he's amazing because he's an exception to the rule. <coughs> he got thrown in jail for seven years at age 15 because some <laughs> cop came up behind him and he was a big kid and he turned around and, like, kind of defended himself right. and hit the guy. Right. And never mind you, then 12 cops beat the shit out of him. Right. But they still gave How him seven How does none years. of this surprise me? Right. And so, you know, he was molded by the system. Right. Right? And then he was life of crime for 20 years. And it took him his last bid. He went in for two years, and the state of Florida declared him incorrigible. The judge wanted to put him in jail for life for, like, possessing, like, a pill or something, but he couldn't. So he said, I'm giving you two years, and I'm making you do it at – I forget which prison it was, but the prison in Florida that has death row. So he'd be an – Stark. Maybe. I don't know. I forget. But, like, he'd be an orderly on death row. Right. And 
he figured it out himself in there. He like had his coming to Jesus moment. Epiphany. Yes. I don't this is not me. And he know. turned his entire life around. It's like this unbelievable guy owns a couple right. businesses. Whole people love him and mentors a lot of people. But like not a lot of people get the chance to do that. No. You know? Like I said, rehabilitation takes place only if you want it to take place. Yes. You take it upon yourself. The resources are put in front of you to take advantage of. Whether or not you do or don't is up to you. Right. And there are a lot of avenues of rehabilitation, if that's what you choose to call it, available to you in those scenarios, in those prison scenarios. And in my case, you know, being a law clerk, and I take advantage of that, you know. Clearly. Any opportunity that I can to to learn better that place in which I was put. Um, nothing I could do about being in prison. And after a while, you learn to look to 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 not look beyond the fences, because that world out there doesn't mean anything to you anymore. Mm. All it does is bring heartache and, and resentment, and and you know it can turn you inside out, and it can eat at your brain. And I've like I said, I've seen guys literally run to the fence and try to and start climbing that fucker. No. I, it, in their state of mind, not knowing, not knowing full well, they're not going to get over that bug and vents. They're you just, know? They're going as crazy. soon as they touch it, they know where they're at. The light goes on in the fucking uh, monitoring room inside the inside the main gates in the prison and the control room because on the interior fence is a, a wire strung, real thin wire strung above the top of it called the snitch wire. So when you touch that fence, a light will go on in the control room and tell them exactly where you touch the fence. And it's a 24-hour... Two trucks and guns and guard towers and guns and rifles and shit. 365 days a year, 24-7, circling that prison. There's a short 10-foot fence inside with razor wire. There's a killing field of about 15, 20 feet inside covered in razor wire. And an even taller fence outside you got to get over with razor wire on top of them. Now, you're not going to get through that. No. But it's just that state of mind in which they find themselves that they just go running. And being a law clerk as I was at that time, my entire time being a law clerk, I probably did while I was in there, 40 divorces I wrote for guys that weren't going to get out, you know, in any short time at all and decided that they should split from their wives and allow them to go on and, you know, have their life. Wow. And I got really very good at doing divorce. I did my own, as a matter of fact, after I got, you know, I was home and got married and got, you know, married. And oh, later. later. Later on, after I got home. Yeah, because that, that, that's the other <laughs> thing here. You, like, this all happened, so you got out of jail. You were young. You were what, like 34, 35 yeah, when you got out of jail? 32, I think, somewhere like that. So yeah. you got your whole life in front of you and everything. I this was is back in 93. fortunate to get my life back. And what, what did you, I mean, did you have any temptation to go back to it? No, God, no. No, 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 no. Because that's good. You know the the um, the federal magistrate at the, my time of sentencing looked me dead in the eye, and she was very quite serious. Her position as a federal magistrate was given her by Reagan, mm. and federal magistrates have that position for life, mm-hmm. and it can't be taken away from them. She was very serious and very diligent in what she what she was doing. She even wrote she was quoted in the newspaper saying, "I have." A mission. I'm on. I have a mission to do what I'm doing. And she looked me dead in the eye and she said, "Mr. McBride, that time of sentence." She said, after she sentenced me to the mandatory ten, I had the sentence capped at twenty in lieu of everything that I told them about how stupid they were and all this kind of shit, giving them that invaluable law enforcement, you know, vaccines mm. look. She she thanked me for that and appreciated it and said that um, after she sentenced me to ten years, she said, "Mr. McBride, if I ever." 
for whatever circumstances ever here of you in any courtroom in this United States being brought before a magistrate for these type of crimes, I will warehouse you for the rest of your life. And that's when I went, yes, ma'am, you won't see me Say again. no more. You, that was all I needed to hear. And that resonates inside my brain. Every time this topic comes up, wow. I can hear her. I can see her looking right at me, telling me that. Look at me. I mean, a dead, cold stare. Look at me right in the eye. I will warehouse you for the rest of your life. And she was fucking serious. Well, good for so you for hearing Going back message. to that shit, man, yeah. there's no fucking way. It's just, you know. I, so what did you do? I, I learned, you know, I got two things out of that, you know, and, um. I uh, I picked up on this from a from a guy I know. His name is Brian O'Day. He was a smuggler back in back in the days, and his claim to fame was uh, as um, I don't know, maybe a hundred thousand or so pounds of uh, Asian weed that was brought into the Gulf of Alaska from Asia, and they put it aboard a fishing processing boat, and they packaged mm. it and froze it in fish boxes, and they brought it ashore in Washington. And right at the docks, and they're unloading into the tractor trailer trucks, and they would have an actual box of fish with frozen fish in it sitting different places on the boat. And a guy every now and then would knock one of them over, and fish would spill out on the deck mm. to kind of distract from, you know, maybe there's something nefarious going on, if you will, rather like, well, but um, um, I came to terms with this, and, and I got two things out of this whole lifestyle, or if that's you know, for the lack of a better way of putting it. I learned what a house full of money looks like, but I also learned at the same time what very little difference in my life it made. Mm. So I have no no compunction whatsoever to ever, you know, to ever go back to that mm. because I had, you know, reached the pinnacle in sentencing and, and in smuggling, you know, I couldn't top that. Yeah, you couldn't. You're never going to get above and that. And now either. that they know the whole workings and how it happens, there's just no fucking way it could ever happen like that. Yeah. And it didn't happen even at the time it was going on. That was the only place in the world that this sort of thing could have happened at the degree in which it was happening. Wow. Because of the geographical location, you know, in which we were bringing all this stuff. Plus being family in a, in a, in a, you know, a town of, you know, close-knit people. It's crazy. It's just like, like, it's so long ago now that I feel like the fact that you waited so long until, you know, 2012, 2013 to start looking at actually writing right. this story, you've kind of lived a whole nother generation of your life. Yeah. I think it makes it a lot more powerful because not only did you go through the whole system and reflect on it there and then you know, get out of prison, but then you had a whole life in front of you. You, you got right. married, you had kids, you I had all this perspective. I was blessed to be able to have my kids. You yeah. Know, the two most important things, people in my life, you know. That's awesome. And I get choked up when I think about that because, you know, had these sequences of events not have taken place the way they did, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you right now. And, and, and dropping back a bit, um, a few paces on, you know, ultimately writing and, 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 um, educating people on how actually this was done, you know, and how it can be done nonviolently, not like you see what's happening on the borders of our, you know, Mexican, mm. of the United States and Mexico. But um, knowing that, um, you know, having, have, giving people a level of comfort now that it's, it's 
fucking quasi-legal in every state in the United States. Right. It's medically and, and uh, recreationally legal in, you know, at least 32 of these United States right now. Which, by the way, I'm thinking I should get some fucking, fucking credit, <laughs> credit back or something, you know, because I can go down the street and buy the fucking shit now, you know. Yeah, how do you feel but, about that? Uh, you know what? It was bound to happen, mm. you know, because, uh, you know, having talked to some of these agents who were in charge of my case, like David Waller, the, the and FBI you're friends agent. with these guys now, yeah. too. Um, one of my dearest friends is, you know, John. John uh, is, was the. Uh, 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 supervising customs agent that was in, you know, involved in my case, awesome. and two of his interdiction specialists that were running interdiction vessels chasing my ass out there a number of times. You know, they even said out of their own fucking mouth what a waste of time it was for them. All the billions and billions of dollars over the years trying to, you know, stop something that was virtually unstoppable because it was um, a war of attrition. Right. You just keep throwing this shit, and it's going to get through. You know, lose one, who cares, lose one, who cares, you know, like that. But, you know, when you you started talking earlier in our conversation about how the the, uh, Mexican cartels wound up, you know, warning the cocaine and and like like that. Well, here's a bit of information regarding that. Now, I had a meeting, um, it's probably gone about seven years or so now, seven or eight years now, um, that I had uh, the opportunity to to visit in his office, the... uh, Supervisor for Homeland Security for South Florida invited mm. me to his office to to meet a legend. He said, "I started laughing. <laughs> I said, what the fuck are you talking God about? Damn, this world got backwards." <laughs> he says, "Now come and come and talk to me." He says, "I'll, I'll explain to you." You know, and it turns out that we, um, by association, we had the same um, family doctor, same family mm. physician. And Is he allowed? He's not allowed to tell him that though. HIPAA. Well, he he was telling him about me. You know, the doctor was telling you, yeah, about- dude, telling you know this uh, homeland security guy, you know, but because I'm always in there talking doctor. to him, you know, about you know this was before medical you know, cannabis came about. I'm you know giving mm-hmm. him a little history. He was you know everybody is engrossed in this right here, you right. know, um, and um, so he felt it, you know, that um, he said, "Do you what happened?" You no, know, it just came into conversation. I don't know how exactly, but you know, he, my name came up, and guy, he said, "Oh, give him a number, have him call me, or you know, whatever. Give me, his, I'll reach out to him." So I don't remember the um, precise details about how that came about, but we wound up talking that day, and that's when he said, "You know, come in. I want to meet a legend." And, you know, like, and that. what did he want to know? Um, he just kind of wanted to kind of sit back and get from himself, you know, from the mouth of the guy, you know how this was taking place and and he was eager to tell me what took place and and eventually happened to that industry once they took it out of our hands. Mm. Now, he said um and this was something that I did, that I wasn't privy to. You know, I needed him to explain this to me. I would have not known this. And uh, quite simply, uh, he said that when we when they ended um the cocaine importation into South Florida. And then there shortly after ended the marijuana importation in Southwest Florida and the degree in which it was being done as far as taking my crew out of the picture. That ended Caribbean weed from coming into this country in the late late 80s, early 90s. That ended Caribbean weed. No, it didn't happen in Texas either. Really? Yeah. There was a huge paradigm shift in those two industries, and what took place was this. The Sinaloa who've been around forever. Yep. There's nothing new about this fucking guys, okay? Mexico. In Mexico. They um they didn't want the they didn't want the Caribbean weed or the Colombian or uh, Colombian weed. They had their own. Yes. 
what they did, and they had the the opium poppy to make the uh, brown tar heroin and whatnot. They could yes. grow that poppy in Mexico. They couldn't grow the coca plant. Yep. So they wanted the cocaine. So now, not coming into South Florida anymore, cocaine is going into the Sinaloa, going into Mexico. That's how they got their hands on it. The yeah. Caribbean weed they didn't want. The Mex the Colombian weed they didn't want. Where does it go now? To North Africa and Europe. Really? That's the market for Caribbean and Colombian weed now. Since they took us out of the, out of the picture, that's where it all turned to. Is this? Do they that do can, that through like used cars? Smuggling. I have no idea how they did it. You know, I didn't really get into that with him. You know, the particulars of how that uh, uh, that bit of organization was designed. Wow. He was just giving to me the, the the paradigm shift in those two industries and how it all happened, how it took place, and how Mexico wound up becoming the killing ground that it is because they yeah. wound up. And I said, "Well, look, how do you? How does it feel taking all this out of the hands of people that never fired a fucking shot at you? And look what's happened to it now." That's Over 35,000 deaths a year because of this little fucking plant. And that's not even counting what happens with the cocaine and meth and you know, all that yeah, shit that's, that's happening where, now, you know. That's where it was already, that's the thing. Like, the cocaine was obviously very violent. You know, Griselda, all it's that stuff. It's always had that violent streak in it. But the pot, you guys were just running through West Gulf, chilling. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when they stopped us... And the, the significance of what it was we were doing literally ended Caribbean weed coming into this country. That's when it shifted in the early, late 80s, early 90s. When was this meeting again with him? This was, uh, I think, probably in 2015, 14, a okay. year, year before yeah, I published. Not that, not I think something ago. like that. It wasn't long. It wasn't that long ago. But, you know, I was given this, you know, this bit of information and because and, I had no clue. You sure. Know? So when I asked the guy, I said, look, tell me, tell me honestly, please, would you, in percentages wise, what you think your success in, in, in um, interdicting marijuana coming into this country is? And what do you think is your percentage of, of success? He looked me dead in the eye and said, maybe 1%. <laughs> I said, thank you. Wow. Thank you. They're only catching maybe 1% of it. Wow. And I said, that's exactly right. Because in our day... For every one pound that was confiscated or busted, 400 got through. 500 got yeah, through. You know, it's just. Or maybe it got a second chance with Noriega. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it all shifted. And, and the border, our southern border, became what it is because of them taking it out of the hands of a bunch of South Florida people that never fired one motherfucking shot at anybody. Yeah. I, I mentioned it a little earlier, but that Narcos Mexico. See, like when Narcos came out and it was all about Escobar for the first three seasons, that had all the fanfare. It was Pablo Escobar and everything. Right. Everyone knows him. Right. But Narcos Mexico, which is the second half of the series, had a lot less fanfare because people it doesn't have like the Escobar name, but it was excellent. And it was actually very historically accurate. And when you see how fucking fast this moved from weed to coke and the violence that came with it. I mean, we all know about it now, right. but it's like... You know, it does make you think. Every time you take out an El Chapo, there's just fucking ten of them to replace them. Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. And it's so crazy. And and it seems like the war on drugs. Like we all we all rip it as we should, but it's never ending. If people want products, someone's gonna always take the risk to get it to them. Well, that being said, he turned right around, and looked back at me, and asked me. He said, "Okay, now how would you stop it?" <laughs> And I didn't skip a beat. I said, legalize that shit. Yeah. Knock the fucking sales out of it. 
take the demand out of it. Yep. And the, and it, and then it's over with. That well, look what's easier. happened. Yeah. Thirty-two states now, like I said, are, have it legalized cannabis in recreational or medical, and every other state in the United States has it somewhat quasi-legal in some fashion or another. And you don't hear about the brickweed anymore coming out of Mexico. Very little of it do you ever hear about because it's it's who wants that shit? It's and like, I told yeah. that supervisor, uh, the Homeland Security guy, I said, look, if you snap a picture of some poor bastard, some poor Mexican fucker that's got a bail strapped to his back walking through the Sonora Desert, you know, half dead, and in lieu of getting that bail to here in the United States, his family is being held hostage in Mexico, show him that picture, and then show him a picture of a beautiful, glistening in the sun, <laughs> medically grade yeah. fucking cannabis bud, and ask the people of the United States, which would you rather smoke? And you know what the where, fuck one you think are going to be pointing at? It's easy. This and, one, and you know where it's coming from too. Exactly. You know exactly. that's the other thing with drugs that there's so much shit coming in, and obviously weed has a lot less problems with this. But you know, this drugs all over the place are getting laced with shit, and you don't know it. And then right. you know the fentanyl's the common one, and it's so fucking right. scary. But like, weed is the one that. All right, you want to have arguments over the other ones because it's different health consequences stuff like that okay fine i'm I, I hear you but like weed is the one it's just never i've never seen a good argument for it i'm like why no this is so one. stupid the only way that you can od on marijuana is if you can smoke 1200 pounds of it in about an hour <laughs> that or have that same 1200 pounds fall off a shelf on you and fucking squash uh, you that's the only way it can happen you know, and it has been proven throughout the years now that it does have a medicinal value to it. It's very striking yes. in, yes. in its in its uh, it does you know in its efficiency in doing such a thing. And you know, once that paradigm shift took place, you know, in the early nineties, uh, wasn't too long after that was the advent of the Emerald Triangle in Northern California, the uh, Trinity, um, Mendocino, and um, and um, Humboldt County. The I'm three, not, the three counties, the tri Emerald Triangle that. in Northern California, where all the old timer mom and pops were growing home homegrown weed. Oh, that's what developed, and it wasn't too long after that when California in 1996 became the first state to to allow medical use of cannabis. There's a. Th I'm going to show you something afterwards. I don't know if it's the same thing. I was looking at something else. Maybe that is because it's easily sure. grown. It can grow. Cannabis can grow anywhere in the world. And it grows quickly because it was, you know. <laughs> well, if you have a greenhouse, this just yeah. reminded me of this too. You know, as you know, as kids doing our thing, as we were doing it with the with the adults, and we wouldn't always unload at the same guy's house. It was all over the island, and this and that. But it was always one of us guys or two of us kids' job to go around to all these spots where we offload and clip down the plants that are starting to grow <laughs> because this, I mean, they're just littered with buds and seeds. When yeah. the load comes through and the shit starts growing, <laughs> if I wanted to smoke a joint, I'm standing on the hill getting the traps ready for next season in the summertime. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's hot fucking work. You know, if I want to roll a doobie, I'll just go down to the seawall and pick some buds Boop. up off the ground and go roll a Done. fucking joint. It's all right there. Product's yeah. right there. It's awesome. So that being said, that's how you know Humboldt County, Mendocino, and Trinity, and and uh, and, and and that. Came into you know came into what they wound up being today as as the as the Emerald Triangle. Wow! And what what are you doing these days? I'm uh, this. I'm talking this. people telling the story. Yeah, I had a bit of unfortunate accident take place a few years back, which which um, I'm I'm uh, I'm drawing a disability for through my Social mm. Security now. You know, um, nothing really um, 
devastating to the point of you know me losing my health or my life you know and after a number of years but enough enough to where i you know i i can't um i don't function as properly as i should you know mm. as i as i would have, have I, had i not had that accident but um besides that it allowed me the opportunity it gave me the opportunity to focus on writing this book and uh what prompted it was like you you mentioned earlier you know why it takes so long to tell a story like this well a lot of us, you know, for a lot of years, really didn't didn't see what the big interest would have been, you know. And a lot of my friends, even today, while I was, or even when I was researching and going down and talking to the old timers and getting their story to put yeah. this together, who would want to hear about this? You know, I mean, just because to us it was just, you know, forty ton loads were just <gasps> that was yeah, another night of it. fucking busting our ass. It was you know, there was no second thought of it, you know. But you know. Now, thinking about it, I said, well, you'd be surprised. I was always one capable of thinking outside the box, you know, and I thought, well, you'd be surprised. And when I went back there to get, you know, some of the backstory from the older generations from prior to my even coming onto the scene, this shit was happening for, you know, 20 years before I showed up, mm. you know, and I'm getting these old timer stories in order to round out the story to give you the full glimpse of what was taking place, Um they, uh, the older generations agreed that, or whoever I was talking to agreed that the story should be told and it should be told in our lifetime by somebody who was there, somebody who can tell it honestly and without embellishment because, and I've been asked that, you know, about embellishing on the story because of the ridiculousness of, the, of what it is you're going to read. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, look, two things would have come of that. If I had embellished on what I had written, it first of all would have come off sounding just so fucking stupid and outrageously ridiculous. Nobody would nobody would have believed it. And um, second of all, we were already operating on the on the limits of um, reality. What do you mean? On the, on the, um, at the at the at the at, we were already I would have put it over the top of what was. Um, capable of happening right okay gotcha. you know gotcha. we were right on the edge of the possibilities of it being done any more than it could possibly be fucking done yeah it was a last to go beyond kind. that it would have been that would have been ridiculous as well so i kept it just as i just as you read it and you know without any embellishment whatsoever and it's up to you you know to you know buy the book it's on amazon now it's in its second edition and printing it's um um they were selling. It's. Uh, I think it's a paperback uh, version of it now. I haven't got my copies yet because it's get so an, new. You can get an electronic version too. You can get a. Kindle. There's an ebook. Yep. There's an audible version of it that is told by a very cool guy by the name of Wes Talbot. Wes um, Talbot. When I was on pre-production for the audible, you know, um, I got a call. I got a my my um, agent got a, a message from Audible saying that uh, we're in pre-production. If you have any questions about, the, you know, that you want to um, query the. Um, you know the the voice you know that we've casted for this um feel free to contact him and get a hold of him so i got told my agent i said well hook it up he said no just call the guy you know call him so i call this guy wes he answered the phone now um i said is this wes he goes yeah Wes Talbot? Yeah, this is Wes Talbot. I said, well, this is your next project, Saltwater Cowboy. It's Tim McGrath. Oh, man, he said. <laughs> he said, I've been waiting to, you know, I wanted, I've been looking online or whatever, trying to hear something about how you sound and your voice and this and that. He said, this is perfect. And I said, well, you know, I'm kind of doing the same thing in reverse because, you know, I had you answer the phone and said, hi, my name's Wes Talbot. I, <laughs> I don't that fucker up and call You're the fine. agent. He ain't the guy, man. <laughs> you know, but through the conversation, he, he had told me this is the 32nd book that he's done as a voice. Yeah 
wow. for for Audible. Prior to my book, he had done mostly Stephen King's books. No shit. So yeah. you got a good one. So I got a good guy. You That's know, great. and and you know, I kind of mm, a little bit because you know it's my baby. You know, yeah. and it, it's and, and and now that you hear my voice and you hear how I speak and and in the in my tones and my and my inflection and my you know and, and that stuff, it's all revealed to you in the book. You hear my voice come through the pages. I agree a thousand percent. I, I wrote yeah. every single word that you write that you that you read. This guy here, Ralph, was guiding me through the publishing process. He was a, a, a St. Martin's Press author as well. Oh, he was a he was in the stable of authors with my uh, literary agent mm. and he tagged him on to me to kind of help me you know guide me through the publishing process because when you publish a book uh, particularly with somebody like St. Martin's Press who who has a stable of authors that include Jackie Collins, Robert Ludlam, George Grisham, you know, these are some huge names. authors, yeah. huge names and I needed to be somewhat worthy of being put mm. in that in that pool. And um because when you offer a book just to a publisher like that, you give them a complete work. You give them page numbered paragraphed um everything except for the printing of the book in itself you have to offer them they you know my um it's a whole nother business my editor um my first editor i had two editors um when i started i got a a guy named yanev uh, um uh, yanev poha was his name and um the first 48,000 words or so of the book that I had written was only edited twice by Yanev because um, it, it was written in such a way that there was really nothing you could do to it, you know? It, it and being, really, in, being a historical um, 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 tale as it is, you can't fuck with that. No, you know? it, it, really, it, it doesn't – I knew reading the prologue – forget the fact that it was a crazy story – like the voice – because I, I had seen some of your stuff online. The it, It's not... How do I explain this? It's almost like it's not written like a book. It's written like you're talking no. to me. And and there's a reason for that. There are there are three styles of writing. There's an English and American style of, of literature. And there's a, uh, a style of writing called the Chicago Manual of Style. Mm. And it allowed me... The Chicago Manual of Style allowed me to be more... Um, grammatically forgiven and being able to tell the story in my voice mm. to be more accurately portrayed and um it's fun it's gonna, and and, it's and, and, and that's how it. you're able to hear my voice come through the pages now when i when yanov uh ditched did, i say ditched me but <laughs> took a took uh took a better deal and god bless him you know i mean he wound up um um, exiting from the, know, the middle of doing this book to become the senior executive editor at uh, Doubleday, a Random House, mm. rather. Wow. And um, uh, Mark Resnick, who is the senior editor, um, chief editor for St. Martin's Press, who championed my book to the publisher, Susan Robinson, at that time, you know, they agreed to publish and take my work on. Um, he was uh, he he wanted so very much to be a part of the editing process from the beginning, but he couldn't. He was finishing up a book ca- um, called um, American Sniper. Oh, that and, was a big one. Yeah, it was, that's a that was cool a story. One. So when American Sniper finally went, you know, out of uh, copy edit, Yanov took off. Mark jumped in and oh, helped wow. me. You know, worked with me on the second half of the book, which is another forty four thousand words. Wow. Is the second half of the book, and. Um, we only did one edit together. One. Amazing. Because, you know, he's, and I had sent at that time he took over. I had already had this, a lot of this written out, you know, 
all the way to the end. It wasn't really honed and fine tuned and um, um, and um, put together as it is as it is now. Um, and he um, he only said, uh, "I'd like to hear a little more about the smuggling stuff and a little bit less about the prison kind of stuff." You mm. know, if you can do that, you know, then we're cool. But at yeah, that time, a lot of smuggling stuff. But there. at that time, my my literary agent, who was um, Peter McGuigan at Foundry Literary and Media in Manhattan, you know, and my, and he said, "Why did you send that all to him?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> the guy's got to kind of know where I'm going with this thing." I mm. said, "Don't worry about it. I get one or two edits. I'll know exactly what he wants." Well, I knew exactly what he wanted after the first edit, and that <laughs> was and once it, once that went by, and I wrote the rest of the book, it went straight into copy edit. Oh wow! And that means copy edit. I mean. You get the punctuation where it needs to be. You get the T's crossed and the I's dotted and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And that's the editing process before it goes into typeset, type print. That's the last step in the in the process. And and uh, Mark was really very gracious and you know and 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 knowing that there's you know this is a historical accounting and you just can't fuck with that. And that being said, it was the in-house favorite at St. Martin's Press enough where they set out um, advanced readers' copies prior to the copy edit. They sent out a paperback copy of it with all the little flaws and stuff in it to celebrities and newspapers and things like that to get feedback and review. And one of the persons who insisted on having a copy of the book was a gentleman by the name of Bruce Porter. He wrote the book Blow. Oh, like the movie? George Young's story. Oh, wow. From which they got the movie out of. And he offered one of the two reviews that appear on the back of the book. Oh, yeah, he's right here. I'm looking at it right now. Have a read of it. A wild and entertaining true story by one of the biggest potholers in American history. Speedboat chases, women, Colombian mansions, Tim McBride's tale of excess is a thrill to read. That guy's a legend because that, I mean, it blows one of my favorite movies. Right. It's fucking incredible. And how awesome to have a guy like that, you know, put some put some words out, you know, that, that, des- so cool, that describe me in that way. Are we going to get a miniseries one day? Um I'm really hopeful about that. You know, I, I had, I've had opportunities throughout the years. I even optioned it to FX television mm. for 18 months um, years ago. And I had gotten as far as um, them getting ready to attach a director to it. But as these options dictate through the, com- through the contracts that we drew up, that if you're not into financing for any type of production, by the time the last month rolls around, then I have the ability to take that option back. Mm. Well, for 18 months, I'm passing up people that are, you know, yeah. that are, that are, you know, chiming in like um, executives from uh, Longshore Entertainment, New Wave Entertainment in L.A., um, Frank Marshall, who founded Amblin Entertainment with Steven Spielberg, even got word of this. Mm. Um, the problem uh, is with options, they do so many of these and then they, they build in that they're going to shelve a bunch of them. It's, right. it's really sad. Depending but. on the length of the option and the wording that you, that you put in place, mm. you, can, you can dance around subjects such as that. You, know? you have so much time to get this done. You can't shelve this thing. And if you're not into financing by the time the last month rolls around, I'm not going to renew this fucking thing. Or mm. I have the ability and the option to, to or not to. Well, they were duking around, and it just so happens at the same time, FX was in pre-production of a show that's run now for like seven years, I think, um, Snowfall. I'm not familiar with It's a crack cocaine kind of a scenario, and Mm. what they didn't want to have at that time was a conflict of genre on their own network. Yep. But they weren't willing to let the story go because it was such an awesome story. Wow. So they had kind of thought that they were going to go ahead and and produce the, the series and have another network air it for them. 
And I thought, well, okay, this is a two-network deal. This is awesome. But they dicked around again. And like I said, when somebody holds your option, I can't do anything with it. But now My hands are it. tied. But now it's out, I right? got it back, and I own all that shit, man. Yeah, so we got to figure that out because it's a hell of a story. The next but. step in the process is to create a treatment and a, and, a, and a first draft of a screenplay. And I'm a writer, okay? Clearly. Yeah, you did a good uh, job. But I'm not that guy. I'm not that kind of writer. I'm not a screenwriter. I just – I don't know the – I don't know it. How to, uh, I can way, read screenplays, but – I mean, it's way different. It is way, absolutely way different. different. You have to give them, you know, everything you can give them so they can feel where they're at. That's why a lot of these amazing authors who write books and then have the time per se don't adapt their screenplay. You would be surprised how many cult classic feature films that came this close to not being made because of stupid shit like a script or financing, Forrest Gump. Awesome fucking movie. Amazing. I movie. mean, just just incredible fucking movie. Came this close to not being made. Why? Because first of all, they went through script after script after script and turned it down until they finally found the one they did. Once they got into production of the movie, it kind of, you know, lost its push with regards to financing and went over budget like a lot of movies do. Yep. Tom Hanks actually had to support in financing the last half of the movie himself. I didn't know that. In order to get it made. And now that it's gotten made and it's gotten out, look what it turned into. Good bet. Jeez. It's crazy the number of things that happen by it. It can can happen or not happen, just like you said. There are authors out there that I I bow graciously to. You know, Oliver Stone being one. He wrote Scarface, for Christ's sake. He's he's mentioned my name. He's heard of me. You know, that'd be cool. And a book that he says, you know, I absolutely love this shit, he says. (laughs) And I'm humbled to death and and privileged enough to hear that come out of a man's mouth that wrote Scarface, for Christ's sake, the movie. Fucking A, man. You know, and but, but well, I hope yeah. I hope we get it, man. I mean, if people can't hear it, this this is probably going to be two podcasts because it was just too right. good to. Well, to I'm not stop, give, I'm not giving up, man. You know, no, this no. is my life. This story is awesome. Here, this is know? awesome. I mean, it's it's it, your perspective is really cool too because it was a long time ago as well, and you waited a while to do it. But right. listen, man, I really appreciate you coming down here and doing this. It not was absolutely all, awesome. Not at all, man. And 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 one caveat to what you just said regarding having written the book and the reason why it was written and. And um, getting back together with the older generations and some of the guys that I grew up with and, you know, and to round out the story, um, it was important for us not only to um, have people who understand exactly how this took place in a nonviolent atmosphere and yes. family-oriented atmosphere, but it was also important to allow the story to be told by someone who was there that could actually tell them from their start to the end and worked almost every position there was to work in that little bitty uh, industry and how we were doing that to tell it correctly, where if we just, you know, let it sit and rest without having told the story the way we need it told, honestly and truthfully, and allow 30 or 40 years to go by and we're all right. dead and have some half-assed journalist or historian patch quilt together from all these articles a story that they think took place. We weren't willing to allow that to happen, so that's why they nodded, gave me the nod in the head, and said, "Write this fucker, Timmy, and tell him all about it." <laughs> you fucking dead man! So, so thank you for is. doing it. Oh, my pleasure, my and man. And thank, thank you for you coming s- down here. Oh, thank you so much Up for here. letting me let me be here and and uh, you know, of course, of and, course. I, I always indulge say, myself. You know, I always say that with Florida. I don't know why. When I bring Florida people up here, I always say, "Thanks for coming down here." I have <laughs> no idea why. But anyway, I got to get you out of here on on this flight, but. Yeah. This is uh, this is probably gonna be two. So that's we'll, cool, man. Hey, we'll get it out. Get there. me back, and we'll go another four hours, dude. I, I bet we could. There's a lot I didn't touch today. <laughs> this is so. forty years and three generations and being storytelling to what to a get life. Up.
What a life. But I thank you, and I, I, I thank you all for, you know, sticking around if you have stuck around to the end of this thing and have a listen. Hey, guys, I wanted to take a second to speak to the loyal listeners and viewers of this show who have been rocking with me for a while or even people who have just joined just to give a little State of the Union here. As far as the growth of this show goes, I do often get the question from many of you about, well, why do your episodes not have hundreds of thousands or at least tens of thousands of views every time? Why are they so low? I don't understand it. This is crazy. Your shorts have such high views. It is because YouTube, with their algorithm, the the way it works is like the shorts channels, they all have a problem with long form getting viewed. I don't need to get into details right now, but I know YouTube is working on it. For now, this is what we have to deal with. So even when I do episodes that do insane watch time, like I'm thinking of episodes where I'm doing numbers that like you know, the industry standard for long form podcasts is like 11 minutes average watch time. I'm talking about episodes where I do like 40, 45, things like that. It does not get pushed into feeds because YouTube has basically separated out the shorts from the long form. So what I've really relied on is going viral on shorts. And when that happens, enough people clicking the link that I provide in the comments and the description to come to the episode. That's why you see episodes that have some high views. We have like, I don't know, five or six of them that have over 100 or close to 100,000, something like that. But in the meantime, in order to grow this thing, what I really need is people sharing around the show a lot, sharing it with your friends, sharing it on social media, sharing the clips. I mean, when those clips spread, we're in business. So every time I have a clip, if it's something decent or shareable, if it's not, don't share it. Like if it's not good enough, don't Please don't share it. But when I have a good one, that share button's huge. Sending that around, putting it on your stories, whatever. I'm awful at asking for help. I literally never do. I say the same shit in every intro just about like, oh, subscribe, like, love the comment. Like that's the most you're going to hear me ask for help. So I, I understand I actually have to step out of my shell a little bit with that and discuss it. So this is me doing that. And, you know, I'm blown away with where it's gotten. I would like to be at a point where I'm actually making money so I can invest in this thing and have people helping me and have a producer here more than anything. To this point, for those of you who don't know, because I do get this question a lot, so I assume a lot of people don't know this, I have never employed a single person on this. I have never paid a dime to someone else. I've never put a dime of marketing behind this. Any money that I have made, which is very little, goes right back into investing in the show, paying the bills of the show, paying my health care bill. And paying for people to fly in when I've done that, you know, sometimes that's been a little costlier than I first imagined. So I put it all back to make this product as as great as possible. It still has a cap on it while I'm not making enough money. So basically growing it is the key to success here. And it also can unlock some serious partnerships. So I really, really appreciate everyone who has rocked with this thing to this point. You guys are incredible. Like I said, this thing started on zero. I'm blown away with where it's at. But I do always want to be honest about you know what's needed to be able to get it to that next level. And so any help I can get there with sharing it around and, and getting the word out is huge. I will continue to say that in some comment replies. You'll hear me say, like, keep spreading the word. It's corny, but I'll say it. Repetition is important. I understand that. And so let, let's, let's get it rolling. But... I'll be talking about this sporadically now. Sometimes it may get boring for people hearing it many times, but it is important that I do it. I want to be open about that. So thank you to all of you guys who have been so supportive of this show. And other than that, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.